you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Chris Claremont recommending that you take a listen to Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Marvel 2-in-1, Episode 1B. This is a continuation of from our last episode from last week. And we're going to be covering the second half of the Marvel 2-in-1 epic collection called Cry Monster. And I'm calling this episode This City of Fire, which is a reference to the the Marvel 2-in-1 and Marvel team-up crossover that appears in this back half of this book. We're going to be talking about Marvel 2-in-1 numbers 10 to 19, plus Marvel team-up number 47. And just like in the last episode, uh, I decided to have a a different co-host for each issue, just like The Thing has a different guest star in each issue. So bear in mind, uh, I gave this reminder in the last episode as well, each issue might have a little bit of different sound quality just because everyone has their own mic set up, everyone's Skype connection is different, and I record things in some different rooms in some cases, so just uh, bear with me as we go through each one of these um, one by one. It's going to be a good time, and uh, and yeah, I can't wait for you to hear the, the remainder of these issues. We have some very obscure characters to talk about, and some fan favorites, and all of this is going to be some great conversation. So enjoy this episode. <laughs> Kicking off this second episode, we have Marvel 2-in-1, issue number 10, The Thing, and The Black Widow. This issue is called, Is This the Day the World Ends? And joining me for this issue is Pierce. Hi, Curtis. Thanks for having me. So, why don't we dive into it? Can you tell me what happens in this issue? Uh, Well, the comic doesn't waste any time getting into the action. We start off with an exciting car chase involving Black Widow being pursued by yet unknown baddies. The chase careens through a park where Ben Grimm and his lady love, Alicia Masters, are out for a stroll. Widow can't avoid crashing into Ben, stunning him. The bad guys capture the Widow and take the thing along for good measure. They wake up on some kind of sea platform. Maybe it's a converted oil rig. We find out that the baddies are a terrorist organization called the Sword of Judgment. We get a hint that there may have once been something between Black Widow and their leader, Agamemnon. Their goal is to set off a giant nuclear bomb. Their reasons are pretty vague, bloody vengeance on our oppressors. But Agamemnon spares no horrific detail in describing the devastation the bomb will wreak, with America bearing the brunt. Later, the two heroes are in a cell. Widow confirms that she and Agamemnon used to be an item, and he was once a good man. Widow produces some hidden shield spy gadgetry concealed in a sexy body mold under her costume. I could get mad about the female character being exploited in a gratuitously sexy way, but spies are sexy. It just goes with the territory. So I'll (laughs) save my outrage for something that matters. 
Working together, Widow weakens the force field of their cell with a, her spy gadget enough for Ben to bust through. And clobbering time commences. Unfortunately, in the mayhem, the cable holding the bomb snaps and it starts to sink rapidly into the sea, where it will detonate once it reaches a depth of 7,000 meters. Ben grabs the end of this cable, uses his colossal strength to start pulling the bomb back up. But with all his effort focused on retrieving the bomb, he's vulnerable to the terrorists, so it's up to Widow to keep them off his back. She does this by making strategic use of available resources, zapping platforms and bursting steam pipes to send the terrorists to their deaths. And it is explicitly stated she does, in fact, kill them, which is pretty unusual to see a hero do in comics in 1975. As uh, Ben strains to pull the bomb up the last few feet, only one terrorist remains, Agamemnon. Natasha tries to appeal to his better nature, but he despises the weakling he used to be. She hesitates at shooting him dead. Ben whacks him with the free end of the bomb cable. Post-victory, Widow Radio Shield. Ben muses about how he often hates being the thing, but only someone with the thing's extraordinary strength and invulnerability could have hauled the bomb up from the sea. Widow finds some champagne, and the heroes enjoy a congratulatory toast. Well, there you go. Thank you very much for that recap. What are your thoughts here? Did you enjoy this issue? Uh, yes, I did. I did. Uh, Chris Claremont is a terrific writer. Uh, I noticed early on there's a, a panel of Black Widow being chased in, in the car with the terrorists chasing her, and it, it talks about how she's cool as ice, and uh, she, she lives in a brutal, merciless world where the innocent die as easily as the guilty fact of life you learn to live with it or you die yourself and that, that, that points to Chris Claremont's strengths as a writer because just in that one panel if you'd never seen Black Widow before that would tell you all you need to know about her yeah definitely and one thing I really like about Chris is he really uses the comic medium to its fullest and if you look at the splash page um, and you just look at the words I'm going to read the words for you here it's Sunday in New York, and the sun stands high and warm in a clean azure sky, the air sweet with the heavy wine of spring. It's a day for playing hooky, for shooting frisbees in the park and walking with your lady love. In short, it's a grand and glorious day to be alive. Now, that's a great, uh, just it paints a wonderful picture. However, if you look at the actual picture that's on the page, it's this uh, this this car full of people shooting at another car with Black Widow in it, and it totally doesn't relate to the the words at all. And this is what's great about right. comics is that you can um you can you can see a picture, and it can say one thing, and you can read the words, and it can say another thing. But when you put those two things together, you get this you get this irony uh, uh, with the juxtaposition between the words and the picture. And I love it. And Chris is great at that. Yeah, it's a really strong opening, and and you're right. That's something you can only do in comics exactly that way. Well, more about Black Widow. Uh, th this was a good character issue for her. I, I thought Chris Claremont wrote her a lot better than, um, I think it was Steve Gerber who was writing her in Daredevil mm -hmm. at the time. Right. You know, just we get the hints about who she is and the way her, her training, her lifelong training in the Red Room and all has messed her up so badly that she doesn't really, uh, she, she wants to be good, but she doesn't really understand what good is because her moral compass is so messed up. Yeah, they give lots of hints to, if you're not familiar with Black Widow, lots of hints about her past that don't really, 
Uh, they don't really explain, but then that's because she's a mysterious character. Uh, the thing that's most mysterious here is that she has this relationship with this guy, Agamemnon, who I guess, what's his real name? Alexei? Uh, Andre. Oh, yeah, Andre. Andre Rostov. Yeah, they have this re- relationship in the past, and but they don't explore it any further. And this is the only issue where this guy appears. So the, the relationship must not have been anything of real significance because it's never, ever brought up um, ever again. Right. But uh, it's important, I think, even though even in just this one issue, we only get a few hints. I, I think it's important because it speaks to Black Widow's need of redemption. Mm-hmm. She she killed 100 terrorists, right? Right. On this base, but then she hesitates at shooting this one guy. Yeah, he must have been and special. Feel, you know, in the in the name of the man you were, don't do this. And I I don't even know if if he was that special to her so much as she she wants to believe that he can change, that he doesn't have to be this way, that he can redeem himself because if he can, it means she can. Or the fact that she's working with Shield now because she started out as a villain that she's mm-hmm. redeemed herself so she's giving him an opportunity to redeem himself as well it kind of it could could kind of work both ways there well i don't, I don't know if she really believes that she is redeemed i mean she she is working you know technically for the good guys now but but she's like trying I said, her moral yeah. compass is so messed up you True. Know, she doesn't even know what good is really mm-hmm. yeah she's a very interesting character and it's neat to see her playing against the thing who is you know he's gruff and you know has a temper and such but his moral compass is always straight he he always is a straight shooter and knows what to do and is always there for for the good of whatever situation he's in so um yeah i need to see them team up in this instance Uh, i thought it was an interesting contrast between the the two characters she's focused on the mission you know she has no problem killing these 100 terrorists to save these 100 million people who might be killed by the bomb but when we get Ben's thoughts he's not thinking about 100 million people he's thinking about Alicia and Reed and Sue and Johnny right that he draws strength you know from them and widow doesn't really have anything to fight for but the mission yeah that's an interesting um, observation um, and then the first thing that Ben does, you know, when he's calling S.H.I.E.L.D. is he reminds uh, Widow, hey, can you ask about Alicia for me? Find out if she's okay. Uh, one thing that I didn't like about the storytelling is that we never actually see Ben Grimm pull the bomb all the way up. He's pulling and pulling and pulling, and then it cuts over to Widow and she gets in trouble, and Ben Grimm, kind of out of the blue, uses the cables that he's been pulling to save the day. Um, but we never actually see the bomb delivered to safety, and I thought that was kind of too bad. It's implied, of course, but we don't actually yeah, see that's it. Yeah, like we could see it lock into place, and there, I did it. Oh, I assume it did something. We we just don't know. <laughs> yeah, this was a this was a good issue. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, the bad guys, yeah, like I think you said this in in your recap that they have a very vague motivation it's like we are going to kill all these people in new york for all on behalf of all of the oppressed people in the world and i think he's referring to other countries not like oppressed americans he's speaking on behalf of all of the third world countries that 
are under America's boot or something like that, right? We, we get some hints that the terrorists are from different countries. I think there's a few w- words from different languages thrown around, like they're not they're not just one from one culture. That's right, because this main guy is Andre, and I think another guy speaks French at one point, and uh, mm-hmm. one guy praises Allah, so that's implying a Middle Eastern connection. And Yeah, you're right. I didn't notice that until just now. That's good. They're, they're the UN of terrorists, I guess. <laughs> right. Great. Well, I think that does it for this issue. Thank you for joining us, Pierce, and uh, we'll have to have you back on the show at some point. Anytime. Thank you. Okay, next up in our episode is Marvel 2-in-1, issue 11, uh, featuring The Thing and The Golem. And my special guest host for this for this issue is Rinaldo Gesmundo. Great. Uh, thank you. I am stoked, actually, to be on here, so I'm very excited. And you have your own podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit, just briefly, so we don't waste a whole lot of time here, but just briefly about your own podcast. Yeah, sure. Um, I host, along with another, uh, Connor, a podcast called Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast, basically uh, focusing on Moon Knight, the Marvel character. So anything to do with comics, uh, video games, toys, um, yeah, you name it. Hopefully a TV show sometime down the track. (laughs) That would be nice. Yeah. And yeah, I encourage you to check out this because they have some great episodes. Um, and if you've listened to my Moon Knight episodes, um, they talk about those same issues. And and it's always great to hear a different perspective and stuff. So go check out that stuff for sure. Mm. And But we're not talking about Moon Knight here. <laughs> we're talking about the Golem, which I have never read any Golem before having to read this. So I had to kind of catch up on his history. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. Came in at fresh uh, very interesting character. I, d- I did a little bit of research as well as to the character. Uh, yeah, he's a uh, he's a strange one. I think a bit of a um, a shooting star. Hasn't really lasted long in the Marvel canon. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about this issue? Sure. So, as with many uh, Marvel two in ones, it features the Thing, and basically the Thing and Alicia Masters are heading towards Disney World, um, where they get distracted by basically the golem who is um who has broken free and is under the spell of a uh, kabbalah a magician slash demon worshiper um so the thing and golem uh, inevitably come head to head um and uh it happens to be love that saves <laughs> everything with the, the golem's love for the family which he is intrinsically connected to i guess um they catch up with him and uh kabbalah disappears basically <laughs> now so so yeah i mean that's it, it was interesting i had to read this issue a couple of times to actually figure out what was going on mm-hmm. i really felt like because this is a direct continuation on some previous golem stories yes that happened in uh, strange tales issues 174 176 and 177 the the events kind of directly carried on into this issue here mm. yeah this is um Pretty much, I think, the culmination of the lead-up uh, from Strange Tales uh, and the previous adventures. So it mentions a lot about uh, Professor Adamson uh, and his niece and nephew, and I think it's her fiancé, Wayne Logan. Uh, they're the trio who kind of chase down the golem and who have that connection with the golem. He's got some very interesting interesting power attributes, I found, Curtis. Okay. I mean, it mentions it in the comics uh, he, as long as he touches the earth, 
he has ba- mm-hmm. basically unlimited power. Uh, it doesn't right. specify how much, but he goes toe-to-toe with the thing, so he's got to be pretty strong, I guess. Well, not even toe-to-toe. is like mm-hmm. the thing does his best, and it doesn't even make Golem flinch. That's true, yeah. That's so true. That's, that's incredible power. And I think part of that's because he's stone, he doesn't feel pain, that kind of thing. So, But it, it's neat to see. There's, there's, a, there's a parallel here because... The thing is also made of rock. So we have a rock creature versus a, a stone creature. And if you go back to the, the the Strange Tales issues, the caption that's underneath the golem's name on the cover is the thing that walks. So we have the kind of the thing versus the thing that walks. Um, the walks like a man. So uh, I, I, I think it's appropriate to kind of have them face off. It's kind of neat. Yeah, absolutely. And there's that parallel also with um, which kind of threads through the the story uh, about, I guess, the thing's insecurities about being uh, of a different appearance uh, and Mm -hmm. the discrimination that comes with that. And he kind of, I guess he kind of um, likens that to the Golem's situation as well. And and he sums it up at the end about how uh, people will still kind of view you as a monster, although you're kind of human inside yeah it must be quite a hang-up for the thing because he keeps on kind of bringing it up i guess now did you look into the history of the golem's first appearance uh yes i did briefly which was uh i looked at that editor's note which was the 174 176 177 i think it was uh about the strange tale and there was a whole adventure that he had with professor adamson who was who was the uh the uncle that passed away and leaving uh, his niece and nephew who are featured in this story. Uh, there was a whole adventure with them uh, fighting Kabbalah. So Kabbalah actually, to me again in this story, he really came out of the blue, but he is part of this long thread. Uh, and Kabbalah has always been trying to to get the golem uh, under his control so he can rule the world. I mean, let's face it, the golem is pretty powerful, as we mentioned, so uh, yeah. it's a pretty good play. But yeah, so... It stems from, I think, Prague is where the golem originated from. Uh, and he was discovered by Adamson, Professor Adamson. Uh, there was an altercation where Adamson died, but but before dying, uh, I guess his love for his family uh, was kind of transferred over to the golem. And uh, that allows the trio to control the golem as long as, as, long as I, I believe they both are touching the earth. Because there's a bit of a... Uh, ambiguity in the story here, Curtis, I think, with um, when the water, the tidal wave, uh, breaks the connection. Yeah, I think it's um, also when they are in danger. Right. So when they're not in danger, the golem doesn't come to life. But if they are in danger, then it will come to life. Yes. So I don't... And yeah, like you said, yeah, the, the water cut them off. It made it so that there's two islands, even though they're connected, I guess, under eventually underwater yeah that's what i was thinking but the the water severed the tie and so the golem came to life and and uh and that's that's when kabbalah was going to you know take take his uh control of of the golem yeah and that 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 is exactly why i had to read this a couple times because i wasn't exactly sure of what the you know what the what the golem's purpose was Mm -hmm. and how it was connected to all of these characters I too actually had to read it a couple of times as well because I, I did find a few little plot holes um, in it, but it seemed to had have been addressed uh, rather quickly, I guess, in it. So one of them for me was uh, the thing kind of happens to know 
to kind of bring the trio over to to yeah. help out with the golem. And it comes in the form of emeth, which is truth that kind of shines in the golem's forehead. And I don't know, I find that weird because, again, there's a lot of ambiguity in the character, but uh, is the golem deep down sentient? Does it know? Is it, is it yearning to to try and break free of the hold from Kabbalah? Because for all intents and purposes, the golem is basically a robot, right? It, it is under the whim right. of Kabbalah or, or the trio. But yeah, but it, it actually produces this thing on the forehead, um, which ha- which creates some sort of tele- telepathic link, I think, with the thing. And the thing realizes this and manages to build a bridge um, made out of, you know, debris and, and, and discarded cars to bring the trio across. So this character actually, well, the, its first appearance, its first mention, I guess, is in Hulk number 134, which was written by Roy Thomas. And this was back, um, it was just a few years before this. Mm-hmm. And in that one, um, the Hulk is mistaken for uh, the, the Gollum himself. Right. And, so, and even further back, like this character, the Gollum, is actually something that comes from ancient history. Mm-hmm. It's a... It has uh, it has its roots in um, Jewish folklore, and it's it's a it's a tale that's been passed down through generations and generations about this creature that was built by a rabbi um, in Prague in order to uh, in order to protect the the Jewish persecuted people in Prague. Mm-hmm. So whenever those people were in trouble, the golem would come come in and save everybody, and then go off and vanish again made out of stone and the the whole thing about getting its power from the earth is like that's all accurate to the actual folklore of this character and then Roy Thomas brought it into the Marvel Universe and then Len Wein and Mike Friedrich were the guys who cocked up the story in Strange Tales so it's kind of neat to see these kind of mythological characters you know like and we have these all throughout the Marvel Universe like Thor and Hercules and stuff and this is just kind of another one of them so that's, that's neat that you can tie it in. Yeah, no, definitely. Yep. I'd like to actually talk about The Thing, I guess, in this comic. I'm not sure, Curtis, uh, compared to the other Marvel 2-in-1s as well, if The Thing is portrayed uh, similar to this, but he's quite a brazen character as well. <laughs> yes. He, I mean, yep. right off the bat, he is, uh, I guess, maybe, maybe he's your typical New Yorker. He, he's kind of quite aggressive. Uh, he bustles through the crowd. He even skips buying a ticket, I guess, and just bursts through the gates um, at the beginning. And then he actually takes hold of the train and slows it down, all so that they can't be late to go to, to Disney World. Uh, I, I just <laughs> I just found the thing like, you know, oh, that's pretty brazen of you. Like, being a superhero, I would have thought you would have had a bit more, um, I don't know, I guess, uh, composure or, or responsibility not to not to cause so much damage. There's a lot of damage just trying to catch this train and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, this is true to just this period of the thing in general. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he and he's the same way written in in the Fantastic Four in this and and throughout this book, is that he he's not mopey like he was in the '60s mm-hmm. and kind of down on himself. He's a little bit more secure in his own self, but also just uh, he's rough and and kind of does whatever he wants. Yeah. Uh, later on in through the 90s and and more currently he's much more aware of his own strength and what it means to 
to to cause the damage and, and inflict that on other people. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's really funny. These first four pages of the story as they're trying to catch the train yeah. are kind of all filler and a lot of it's played up as comedy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just showing kind of a fun, a fun side of the thing. And, and there's actually a lot of comedy in this comic as well, which I found, which was another massive theme. I mean, at the beginning, as you say, but even towards the end when he's fighting Gollum, um, we have uh, we have Gollum hitting him like a, a baseball, I guess. He, he takes a telegraph pole yes. and he just right. whacks him, which is very, I guess, very American. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, but it, it was it was hilarious to watch. Uh, but then he, con- you know, he subsequently gets beaten by the Gollum. He gets smashed into a chimney and I found it hilarious how the thing ponders to himself why do they have chimneys in florida you know so all these random <laughs> yeah. thoughts you know and then the uh, then he yeah. gets hit again and he, he ends up in a telephone booth and the telephone booth rolls end over end over end it's it's very kind of comical and and i really did appreciate the um the humor that they put in it oh that's good yeah yeah i think that kind of has to happen when you have an opponent that doesn't talk yes you know there's no banter back and forth so a lot of the comedy has to come in um, either what Ben's saying or through just the physical, like, slapstick. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. I know, for you, I found the golem, although he was very silent and he didn't say much as well, he was very imposing. I mean, his sheer size as well. Uh, I think from Wiki I, I saw he's well over 8 foot tall and he's capped at about 700 kilos, kilograms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a massive unit. Um I found his presence very uh, imposing in the, in the comic as well, and I found that was that was um, quite effective as well against the thing. It made the thing look quite small, and the thing is not a small character. Mm-hmm. Well, funny you mentioned that because back in the seventies, the thing, and the sixties and seventies, like things original sizes, you know, he's shorter than Mister Fantastic. Oh, okay. He's he's not a tall guy. It's only been recently, um, since I don't know, maybe two thousand or so that artists like to draw the thing where he's like eight feet tall and towering over the other guys and he's like got these huge shoulders and arms that reach the ground and yeah. you know that kind of stuff yeah um yeah. so he he's actually fairly the thing is fairly normal size but yeah this artist bob brown likes to uh do a lot of the kind of worm's eye view shots to make the 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 golem just look really really tall over everything yeah true and what were your thoughts on kabbalah as a villain <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of a he's kind of a throwaway villain um i didn't think he was too menacing or anything like that he's kind of a little whiny yes um, one one note about this guy is that he doesn't show up again until a story in the rampaging hulk magazine that moon knight shares a backup story with really um okay so yeah there's there's a ulysses bloodstone I think oh, it's just awesome. a two-part story mm-hmm. in uh, in Rampaging Hulk. Yes, and Cabal is one of the the villains there. And spoiler alert, because it really <laughs> just doesn't matter at all. He dies in that issue. Oh, and then in in Captain America, there's a f- famous Mark Grunewald Captain America story called the Bloodstone Hunt, which ties into oh. the whole um, Ulysses Bloodstone, you know, mythology. Yes, and there's one panel where we see the dead skeleton of Kabbalah 
oh. he, and they don't say his name or anything like that. He's just there on the ground because of what happened in the Rampaging Hulk story. So oh. he doesn't go on to do anything <laughs> except <laughs> die, really. Oh, well, that's, that's probably for the better, I guess. Um, he's got a very iconic costume. I was about to say, if he did come back, they're probably going to have to retcon his, his costume. It's, uh, it's very, very dated. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. al- it's almost yeah. as if it's a, like a, a tropey devil's costume, you know, that you get from a Halloween store. It's pretty funny. Yeah, well, and the the horns on his helmet look, look like um, Unicron from yes. Transformers. Oh, <laughs> and he's <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, um, I'll, I'll have to dig up that rampaging Hulk issue and have a read. But Ulysses totally. Bloodstone is great. I mean, for for listeners out there as well, uh, currently Elsa Bloodstone, the daughter of Ulysses, is is mm-hmm. you know making an appearance here and there. Uh, in the Marvel Universe, and, and I don't know, I, th- I think she's a great character myself. Yeah. yeah. And the Golem himself actually has popped up more recently, I believe, oh. um, because Dum Dum Dugan and um, I can't remember another S.H.I.E.L.D. guy, they put together a little subsection of S.H.I.E.L.D. called Halloween Commandos, hearkening back to the 60s war heroes, mm-hmm. um, that deals specifically with supernatural. And so they put on, like, Frankenstein and Dracula, and the Golem is one of the, the guys that are part of the Halloween Commandos. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I do like the supernatural aspects of Marvel, and that, yeah. that'd be great to, great to see him in a team. Not much mm-hmm. of a talker, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we've talked for a lot, so I think we need to wrap this up. Sure. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us here, and I really hope that we can get you back on the show to do something else. Oh, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure, Curtis. And uh, for sure, let's see if we can tee up something for Into the Night as well. Um, it's been a blast here, and look forward to it. The next issue on our list is Marvel 2-in-1, number 12, featuring The Thing and Iron Man. This story is called The Stalker in the Sands. And joining me for this issue is Bill Field. Hey, Kurt. Glad to be with you, Curtis, for this today. I, uh, I of course, am the host of the Comic Book Historian podcast, along with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. And um, so this is, a, this is a little different than how we do things, and I, I absolutely love it. So I'm looking forward to... Uh, discussing uh, one of the comics I read as a kid and uh, have revisited so uh, for uh, reasons of us discussing it today. Now, let me just say before we go on to this episode that I love your podcast and I love just the conversational um, approach to it. And when I listen, I think, why do I even have a podcast? Because you guys are so knowledgeable about all these different corners of, of comic history. It is just for people who want to know more about comic history, Definitely check out this podcast because it's very, very interesting. Well, that's that's very nice of you to say. We we do pride ourselves uh, in in really trying to put out a great podcast. That goes, uh, of course, to my uh, partners Alex and Jim. Uh, they know far more than I do. Uh, I've been a comic fan since I was ten, and I do know quite a bit. But these guys, one's an eye surgeon, one's a lawyer, so they're. <laughs> wow. they're They've got a greater brain trust than I do, for sure. But we have a wonderful time doing it, and uh, we do like to do it conversationally. And most of the time, we get something really good out of it. Well, let's see what we can pull out of this issue, you and I. Can you give me a recap of what's going on in in Marvel 2-in-1, number 12? Well, Prester John, who we met in, like, the 50s issues of uh, 
or the 60s issues, but it was in the 50s number-wise for the Fantastic Four. He was basically the guardian of the Holy Grail. And we see him again now, and but he's much different. He was a nicer guy before. Now he thinks he's a god, and he's been given the Power Stone. And um, basically, Iron Man and the thing have to overcome this to win the day. Now, Presser John is an actual character from history. One of the uh, one of um, King is it King Richard's knights, Knights of the Round yeah. Table. Yes. And he's known for, if you look into his history, he's known for kind of uh, being a wanderer and and um, kind of he traveled through across Europe and into Asia. And this story kind of makes mention to some of that. And uh, yeah, he he comes across um, a group of Bedouins and they, they kind of uh, treat him like a god. And then he gets a stone and he believes himself that he is a god. <laughs> Yeah, and then and then all hell breaks loose, yes. so to speak. But uh, and and that's the neat thing. And this is what I love about the a lot of the Marvel two and one early issues are that uh, you see Ben Grimm, although he's the thing, he's also still a outstanding test pilot. And so Stark Industries is using him in this case to test the jet, and the jet just so happens to crash right where. Prester John is in underground caverns uh, over the Middle East, and that's when uh, mayhem ensues. So I, I'm interested in this power stone. If this were modern times, uh, there would probably be the word infinity attached to it. Right, uh, right. But, it, it, well, it, it would probably be the power stone. Yeah. Yeah, you it's, know? yeah, it's definitely an early version of that. But, I mean, that's not how the stones worked back in the 70s. Um, right. Starlin changed that in the 90s. But, yeah, this is definitely the pretty much exactly the same as the the, the Power Stone or the Power Gem. And, and, you know, to be fair, Bill Mantlo wrote this issue also. And, of course, he's credited with uh, the creation of Rocket Raccoon and quite a few other characters that have made their way to the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. So he he was no slouch, but like you said, in the seventies, people had a different approach about power and and the use of stones and the like, and they were kind of it's kind of black and white. You know, it wasn't like Starlin created something where you could often empathize with the villains as well as the heroes because they were all thinking they were doing things for noble causes, and and in this case. Prester John had been that guy previously in the Fantastic Four, but he's basically gone a little nutty, and he believes he believes the veterans that he himself is a god, and he believes he's the god that created the universe. Actually, and and I I find it funny that it's such a quick and simple story, considering what a crisis this really was or could have been, and um, it's. It's funny because don't you love those those days of the great just twenty three page stories where it was just all self self contained and oh, yeah. you you would get and especially with the team up books right I mean they were just uh, they don't do things like these anymore I feel like an old man yeah, back in the old days <laughs> but, oh I know but but the artwork is great I love Ron Wilson he always does a good job of. Uh, kind of imitating Kirby to a certain degree, and then you have a cover by Kirby. I'm not, I'm not a big Vince Coletta fan, and Vince inks this book, but actually, he, he doesn't do a bad job. It, it actually is a really 
nice looking book and it harkens back to the early days of Marvel even though this, we're already in 1975 when this came out yeah I have to agree with you there also Vince Coletta does a nice job I really like the splash page where Prester John's holding up the stone and then the double page spread where um, Thing and Iron Man are going to attack there's just some really great dynamic um, pencils and inking going on in there this is still a time period where you, you see fantastic splash pages like you did in this issue. And it also reminds me of some of uh, Ron Wilson's great work on the graphic novel Super Boxers a few years after this. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, but Coletta actually, sometimes I think Coletta messes up really good pencils. He does not do that here. And, and I'm with you on that. The splash pages are pretty magnificent. And I, I honestly just love the... Uh, character design of Prester John. It's it's pure Kirby. It's uh, uh, further into the his Marvel time, so it looks a lot more like the New Gods uh, kind of stuff that you'd see uh, a few years later at DC. Totally. Uh, but K- Kirby had just come back and was doing more covers than anything else in 75, and that's, that's an important thing to mention. But two of his uh, uh, earliest I, well, he didn't create Iron Man, but he did a lot of the early covers. But you you see that flair that he has for the thing and uh, Iron Man on that cover, and the wonderful juxtaposition of Prester John. It's it, this to me is if if you had to hand somebody one comic that encapsulated the fun and the uh, the artistic like uh, reach that they did back then. Uh, if you had to give him one, this would be a good comic to hand them because this, this, you know, and I thank you for bringing me on because it gave me a chance to revisit this comic, and I forgot how much fun this this issue was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great, especially once you get um, into the action and Thing and Iron Man are working together. It was what I really like about this is that they don't. Um, a lot of times with the two in ones. Uh, the Thing and whoever he's teaming up with are sort of independent in what they're doing, but they actually make a really good team in this issue, like trading off punches, and they have some strategy of who's going to attack how, and um, it's a lot of fun, these last few pages here. And, and something else we have to remember, um, at this point, I don't believe uh, Ben Grimm knew that Tony Stark was Iron Man. Right, so, yeah, yeah. So I don't believe he knew that he was fighting with his empo- or current employer as a test pilot. So I always think that's funny because in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, everyone knows who Iron Man is pretty early on, but that's not the right. way it was in the comic at all. Yeah, there are no secret identities in the Marvel Universe, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, except for Peter Parker. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Now, so there is. this is a weird ending... Uh, it's kind of a humorous ending, which I also like about these comics back then, is they had a lot of a good sense of humor to them. Did you know? I hate to interrupt you, but I, I noticed the same thing. But did you notice the fact that it's very similar to the ending of the first Avengers movie, where everybody goes out to eat at the end of the book? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's I, that's funny. I didn't remember that ending. Did you? No, I didn't. Um, it's it's great, and I love how it's just like, yeah, let's go get a bite to eat. And Prester John, what does he say here? Um, if thou will have him, the wanderer would be honored to accompany thee on thy quest for nourishment. <laughs> I love it. Sounds so great. straight out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and absolutely, I'm sure, totally, yep. But uh, yep. It, it's it, it's funny because um, 
I, I love Python, and I just the other day I found out about a the patron saint of procrastination was Saint Expeditus, and I <laughs> swear that sounds like something straight from Monty Python. It totally would be. <laughs> That's you know. So, yep. but what did you think? I'm I'm curious what you thought about how they presented Prester John and how once they wrestled the stone from him or out of his its power on him, uh, wasn't he a great character? Yeah, I I thought that it was um it was a good it was good to kind of put that humor because it really identifies that he wasn't in control of himself when he had that um that that gem uh, or or rather it's you know the saying absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely exactly so it's, yeah. it's that thing I thought it was will, really well done Bill Mantlow has a great handle on all of the characters in this book he gives them each a very unique voice including like you just said here Prester John's two distinct voices before the gem and after the gem right right but I have to ask you this since nobody knows that Iron Man is Tony Stark how the heck is he going to eat with these guys <laughs> yeah right with the helmet on I'm just saying I, I started laughing about that and I go How's Iron Man gonna get to eat? You he'll, know, he'll just get some sort of um, he'll get it all blended up and drink it through a straw. Through a straw, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, well, you know, I really, um, what did you think of uh, the overall artwork and colors? It 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 just screams regular Marvel, right? I mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say nothing spectacular, but it, it is pretty much the standard fare of the day. Yeah. I mean, it's um, who who colored this one? Janice Cohen. I'm not familiar with that name, but it's uh, it's yeah, it's just pretty standard. I mean, they had a very limited color palette back then, so they had to play within the colors that they could use. But they did a great job of uh, of still like portraying the parts that are underground with the different shades of purple and blue and that kind of stuff. Oh and, yeah. Uh, so it's yeah, they they do a they did a great job here. They were using they were definitely using like the gold gold water. Uh, palette of colors so it looked pretty uh it looked pretty classic mm-hmm. to me and, and and don't you love and you brought up a good point don't you love the way they they mix their browns and purples you always knew you were looking at a marvel book and not dc because they totally had different color theories going on yeah i like that prester john is yellow and orange because those are the same colors that Iron Man and the Thing are in this. So we have a, we. It's like um, by the end when they're all working together, it's like yeah, this is a, this is a little team we have going on. Oh yeah, I didn't even think about the fact that yeah, it's almost like it, it is. It's funny that they are all in the same like color into the spectrum. That that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And and especially back then, well, you still had quite a bit of uh, well, it was. It was equally mixed red and yellow on um iron man at the time pretty pretty evenly compared to other times where it was more red or more gold but uh but i love i love ron wilson's thing i i don't like a lot of people's uh newer interpretations of the thing i think the the kirby look uh was really the look as far as i'm concerned and ron wilson always did that justice yeah, yeah, and this is his first issue on the book, and he's going to continue on um, all the way to the end. And in fact, he'll go on to when when this book eventually turns into just a thing solo book, 
and uh, yeah, he he's just he's a fantastic. Not only is he fin- a fantastic artist, but he is a great storyteller. So when I was ta- talking about how the thing and Iron Man are working together in their fight, the the choreography is so well laid out by by Ron Wilson at the end here. Oh yeah, it's 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 a thing of beauty. It really is. And you know, it's probably unfair of me to say this is standard fare because. And I, I did not realize that this is Ron's first uh, issue on the book. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why I thought he started at the beginning, but uh, my, I, I just want to speak, uh, if it's all right, to uh, out-of-issue sequence. But I have to say, for the record, my favorite all-time two-in-one two was uh, issue number 50. And that's where it's, it's the thing and the thing. Oh, yeah. The earlier version of the thing with the current version of the thing and so you have the lumpy thing with it and the way he played those two characters off of each other was pretty impressive too that was written by uh john byrne uh right. who who had i believe either had already taken over fantastic four at the time or would soon thereafter and have probably one of the greatest runs of the, of the comic in my eyes but sure. i just had to get that that little pitch in there for number 50 because that's that's the great issue and and it reminds me of this one and the fact of how you have the two guys working together at the end well maybe what i'll do is i'll try and keep you in mind when we eventually get to those issues in our podcast (laughs) and i'll bring you back for issue number 50 so i got 50 dubs no i'm just joking but uh (laughs) well this was already during marv wolfman's short tenure as editor and it was very brief, actually. And then he soon went after, uh, went to uh, D.C., I believe, uh, shortly thereafter. And then, of course, he had success with Teen Titans, which is all the rage now on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I would love to see a uh, Marvel 2-in-1 TV series uh, in the, uh, the way the Marvel Cinematic Universe is now, kind of like they've done with S.H.I.E.L.D. I think that would be something that, that could be done. And I, I just would love to see a good actor play Ben Grimm. Wouldn't that be something? Now now that Disney has the rights, or is about to have the rights back to Fantastic Four, maybe we can see something like that in, in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm praying for just that. You yeah. know, it, if nothing else, finally a, a decent Fantastic Four movie, if nothing else. Right. Well, thanks, Bill, for joining us for this episode or for this issue. I appreciate that. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, like I said, let's get you back again for um, for another issue down the road. Oh, I'd be happy to come back. Thank you, Curtis. It's been a real joy, and uh, it's been a real real pleasure to be on, on the show. Okay, moving right along here, we have issue number 13. This is The Thing and Power Man. This issue is called I Created Bragadoom, the Mountain That Walked Like a Man. And joining me for this issue is Eric Anthony. Hi, Eric. Hello, Curtis. How's it going? I'm doing well, and I'm glad that you're here to talk with us today. Uh, And you are um, a host of your own podcast. Tell me a little bit about that. So the podcast I host is called Cave of Solitude. It's a comic book pop culture podcast where we discuss mostly uh, comic book stuff. We interview some, some artists and writers when we can. And then we also get into, you know, just the fun pop culture stuff that might be going on, movie reviews, television shows that we've binge watched and things of that nature. So I usually host it with 
uh, variety of guests. Most of the episodes have been actually with my wife, which has been a lot of fun to do because it's nice to get a, a fresh women's perspective on some of my geeky uh, hobbies. But uh, lately, I've been branching out and getting uh, a bunch of different hosts, which is a lot of fun to be able to do. That's great. My wife has no interest in uh, being a part <laughs> of my show <laughs> or these old comics or anything. So that's really cool that uh, that you've got that. In fact, she she often says to me, can't we go see a movie other than a superhero movie sometime? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So this issue here, Power Man, can you give me a little synopsis of what is going on here? Sure, sure. So this, if I'm, if I'm uh, correct, is a fill-in issue, right? So it doesn't follow any of these things, adventures that have been happening thus far in the book. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it starts off with Luke Cage, Power Man, in his classic '70s uh, superhero outfit with the tiara and the the uh, wrist, this metal wristband, sitting in an office of this. I think it's a professor or scientist, Arnold Crank, who's asking Luke Cage for help because he's essentially created this monster from a protoplasma mass that has grown and absorbed some reporters who are studying it at the uh, laboratory where he works. And this thing, he's asking Luke Cage to help stop the, the monster. Luke Cage suggests that maybe he should go to the Fantastic Four or someone else to get some help, but he's already done so. And the thing, as they're, as they're speaking in the office, the thing is battling this monster that has been created by Arnold Crank, and that makes Luke Cage run down New York City to go and give good old Ben Grimm a hand. And uh, a big Donny Brook ensues where the thing and Luke Cage are trying to battle this monster named Bragadoom, and eventually their their efforts prove helpful as the monster begins to shrink back to a normal toy size that Arnold Crank can now monitor and raise as a normal human being as he puts it <laughs> yeah even calls it his son <laughs> his so son funny. that's right <laughs> what were your thoughts on this issue you know what so far I, I've read I've tried to read all of this um, epic collection to try to catch up to this point of the book I haven't gotten quite as far as issue 12, but reading this, it's a lot of fun because all of these things are, they feel like, it felt like a Saturday morning cartoon. And I, <laughs> yeah. I like these these uh, old renditions of these characters who were created in the 70s, such as Luke Cage. And it's a little bit silly, but I like the Ron Wilson art. I like the humor and the banter between the thing and Luke Cage. And if, you know, I didn't go in expecting some sort of sophisticated story that was going to blow my mind but it was a lot of fun and i laughed throughout it and i enjoyed the adventure how about I, yourself what did you think i think you hit the nail on the head there when you call it a saturday morning cartoon this issue more than any of the other ones in this book i feel is uh is very saturday morning cartoony just with the giant monster the rapport between yeah. the two characters um even the kind of a lame ending at the very end there where he just kind of the monster <laughs> just kind of shrinks it's like they, yeah they don't really know how to solve the problem here the writers so they say oh the, the monster just expended all of its energy fighting luke cage and the thing so it's shrunk down and, and that takes care of that it really it lessens the threat of this monster yeah a little bit i was confused because they were going to beat the living tar out of it combined luke cage and the thing yeah 
And then the uh, Arnold Crank, the creator of the monster, says, you know, the more you beat it up, the more it's going to get bigger, and then all of a sudden it shrinks on you. So I'm in, like, in fact, he says, the more you beat it up, it's going to increase its mass, and it will explode with the destructive power of a nuclear bomb. That's what's going right. to happen. And then all of a sudden, that does not happen at all. In fact, the opposite happens. So it's kind of a kind of a letdown of an, an ending. Here. A little bit. Because apparently their conflict has had the opposite effect of what I expected. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a caveat to get out of the, the problems in order to finish the book in the right amount of page counts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you familiar with Luke Cage of this era? A little bit because I, I actually have the Power Man and Iron Fist epic collections. I, I've read a good portion of the first volume of uh, the Power Man and Iron Fist from this era. So I'm kind of familiar with what to expect from Luke Cage, the jive talking, some of the slang that he uses that isn't quite the Luke Cage that you see later on in like the Jessica Jones era where, you know, it's much more like the Netflix version of Luke Cage. Right. But I like it. Um, like you, I've only read a, a, the first chunk of that first epic collection as well. So that's really my only basis of this classic Luke Cage. Um, but he's... He's kind of a jerk. Mm -hmm. He really treats this uh, this guy who's coming to him for help with a lot of distaste, and he's just kind of rude. Mm -hmm. And the only reason he does it is because he finds out that Ben Grimm is involved. Um, otherwise, That's right. he's like, I don't care if this giant monster is wrecking the city. I don't care if all of these people are going to die, whatever. Who cares? This is just not my thing. Oh, wait, Ben's involved? I'm going to go do it. <laughs> so Yeah. I, and this is also, I don't know how early this is in Luke Cage's uh, publishing like existence, because he's a hero for hire, right? He's exactly. still going by Power, Power Man. So. They make a reference to Luke Cage number nine as being a few months ago. Okay. Um, that's on page 270, 287. And so I'm assuming this is before he teams up, well, it's well before he teams up with Iron Fist. Right. Because that happens in issue 50 of Power Man, I yeah, think? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. And this is actually a few months before the before Luke Cage joins the Fantastic Four. That's what I was going to ask you next, because I know in this time he was closely associated with them, or would be. I wasn't sure if it had happened already. So this one is cover dated January 1976, and it's um, the, the issue of Fantastic Four where Luke Cage joins the Fantastic Four is... Um, number 168, cover date, March uh, 1976. Only a couple months later. Okay. Yeah. So maybe this was their, their testing ground for it, what it would be like. It but he replaces been. the thing in the group, right? He does, yeah. The thing has lost yeah. his powers, yeah. Right, right, okay. So that could be another reason to have him. If we want Luke Cage interacting with all of the Fantastic Four, and he's not going to do that when he's on the team because, well, Ben's still there. He's just not the thing. Right, um, right. Yeah, overall this was uh this was a fun issue. There was a lot the 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 best part of this issue is the back and forth between Luke and Ben, how they're kind of just uh um they're kind of competing to see who's yeah. kind of the the more the stronger or this the better superhero. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was I wrote that down actually in some notes where I I said see uh Luke Cage calling Ben Grimm sugar was <laughs> yes. hilarious to me. Totally. Yep. <laughs> What did you think of the portrayal of, of Luke Cage at this time? I know you mentioned that he was kind of a jerk, but just even the way that he spoke, it was it was very clear that they were trying to channel, 
you know that that jive talking black exploitation era does it you know does it is it in bad taste now when you look back at it or is it um i think so it's it's hard to say i'm glad that he doesn't do this anymore it, it just <laughs> um especially if you look at the panel on page 279 at the very mm-hmm. top where he's saying hey man what you talking about from what yeah. uh, from what you just told me you're going to be right up there beside guys like Louis Pasteur and Madame Curie. Um, it's just, it, it just makes him sound unintelligent. Mm. And that's not the way we really want to portray Lucas. Mm-hmm. It's just not appropriate. So <laughs> it's, I'm glad they don't do that anymore. Yeah. And, and like I noticed always the credits, Len Wein was known for being able to capture the voice of, of different cultures at that time. That's almost True. what he was always called in to do. And they were living in New York City, all of these these writers. So yep. I wonder if they were basing it off of. And Ron Wilson, I didn't know this, but Ron Wilson was act, is actually African American from Brooklyn. Right. And so I wasn't sure if you know it was in okay taste for them at that time to to get away with that. But yeah, it doesn't age well. Yeah, I'm sure it was totally fine. Like no one, mm-hmm. I mean, not that it was actually fine back then, but no one batted an eye. It was not considered the same right. sort of thing as it is today. Um, but when we read comics from the 70s and from the 60s, we see these kind of things. And we yeah. it's great that we can recognize that our culture has moved past that and has evolved right. and, and grown. So um, it's a nice reminder of where, we have, where we've come. Yeah, absolutely. Did you like uh, Ron Wilson's art in this book, in yeah. this particular issue? Well, actually, it's, it's funny you should mention that because this is his second issue in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And he becomes the regular penciler for quite some time after this. But this issue is inked by Vince Coletta. Right. And I find that he um, he's just not as smooth, I guess, as... Well, of course, I guess it's Joe Sinnott that takes over a little while later. And you can't really compare with Joe Sinnott. He's kind of the top class. But I love the two-page spread um, yes. with this monster breaking the bridge. It's just fantastic. Yes. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, I do think that he's a good storyteller. Ron Wilson is great. And all of these underwater scenes where they're trying to attack the monster from its ankles and stuff, it, it's he lays it out really, really well. He's hes a solid draftsman for sure. Yeah, and then he would go on to be better known for the Thing series, if I remember correctly, right? That's With right. John Byrne. Yeah, yeah, yeah because 2-in-1 um, becomes the Thing series. They're, they're pretty much the same thing. Okay. And so right. he just kind of carries on uh, penciling. Well, thanks for joining me on this uh, for this issue here, Eric. It's a pleasure. Oh, no problem. This was this was a blast. I hope to come on again for uh, a longer epic discussion. But this was great. Thank you for uh, thinking of me to do this. No problem. Anytime. Awesome. Okay, moving right along here. Coming up next is Marvel Two and One, issue number fourteen, The Thing. And the Son of Satan. This one's called Ghost Town. And with me for this issue is Hartley Holmberg. That's me. Hi. Now, Hartley, um, I know you from, you're local, you're a local guy. We kind of run in the same circles a little bit. And uh, you have your own show um, online. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a YouTube show called The Hartley Show. It's kind of all over the place. We've gone through a ton of different iterations. Uh, for a while, it was somewhat of a comic book talk show, variety show. I've gone back to sort of more the original concept of the show now, where it's more just uh, me just 
with a camera just talking about comic reviews and every now and then I'll film a little video of playing hero clicks, but it's very uh, down to basics. And I'm in a little bit of a hiatus right now. If I do a, a, a upgrade of my sound gear and equipment and whatnot. And where can we find you? What's your URL? Uh, YouTube. We'll just type in the Hartley show into YouTube and I'm the only guy. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, why don't we talk about this issue here? Uh, son of Satan. Are you a son of Satan fan? I'm a huge Son of Satan fan. I, I've always been um, uh, just as interested in classic superheroes as bizarre superheroes. I've always had a, a giant love of public domain heroes and uh, characters from back in the 40s and 30s. The more obscure, almost the more I like it. And I think a lot of that just came to do. And I think a lot of young uh, uh, nerds have these experiences where you discover something that almost feels like, it's yours and yours alone, and other people don't quite uh, understand the concept <laughs> right, or right. have a love for it. And let's be fair, the Son of Satan is just an absolutely bizarre but kind of beautiful concept. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I've been reading a lot of uh, The Defenders lately with, mm -hmm. with Son of Satan in it, and uh, it's been wonderful just getting to explore and get to know this character. So I'm happy yeah. that you're along for the ride here for this issue. Um, can you give me a recap of what happens in this one? So the basic premise of the book is Reed Richards. And now, one of my favorite things about Reed Richards, especially back in this era, was he would just come up with these crazy devices that would never show up again. He's come up with a psych detector, and he's never come up. He's never seen readings like this before. You think, well, uh, you've <laughs> never used this device before. Why would you have readings like this before? Yeah, right. But he's uh, come up with this psych detector, and there are these strange uh, uh, things emanating. And then he uses this. What was that? I wrote it down. He has his computer atlas readout that, <laughs> that we would just call Google Maps nowadays. Yeah, right. That uh, uh, shows that there's a town where there is this big psychic emanation thing going on. Uh, Alicia reaches forward at one point. I sense something, she says, and she gets struck by this weird beam. And then for whatever reason, from that point on, um, uh, Reed sends out Ben alone to go investigate this thing that ends up being a ghost town. My favorite moment when uh, Reed sends Ben off to go deal with this thing alone is Ben says, and I quote, just let me get this monkey suit off while you check the fantastic car. That <laughs> statement is his way of saying, I need to just be in my underwear right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the best parts about this story was it ties into the son of Satan's own uh, uh, storyline. The main bad guy ends up being this character, uh, Cathara, who was from his own comic. And uh, it was, I really and always enjoy when. Uh, uh, these done-in-one stories, which is brilliant to itself, the done-in-one story, tie into other uh, uh, storylines and whatnot. And there's even an acknowledgement of the first time they met. I'm a continuity buff. I love my continuity. Mm, yes. Yeah, and that's, yeah. what is that, Marvel feature, uh, number 24? Uh, yeah, his, the Son of Satan book it was a, a Marvel feature. I believe the actual issue that it cites here was issue we'll see here somewhere that's another thing i really loved uh, marvel spotlight number 24 oh, marvel was spotlight. those little yeah those editor notes i i, I really miss editor notes i don't see yeah. it nearly as much nowadays i agree now marvel spotlight number 24 was the final issue of the son of satan issues in in marvel spotlight because he had a i don't know seven or eight issues there uh yeah and then he got his own book and That's I have what, uh, the Son of Satan classic trade paperback. That's what I have as well. Yeah, and yeah. that is um, 
they they place this two in one issue between Son of Satan number three and number four. Number four, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> right before I found uh, that the, yeah. his ongoing series was nearly as good as the um, the stuff in Marvel Spotlight. They changed writers and artists, and I didn't enjoy it nearly as much. Yeah, it did. It was very short lived. That's for sure. Yeah, if you can collect it all was. of Son Son of Satan into one book, you know that's a that's an obscure character. <laughs> Yes, yes. And well, if you've read the that Son of Satan volume, I mean, he first showed up in those Ghostwriter issues. It's just a really dark character. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was that 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 female supporting lead of his book where there's that moment where he just uh grabs her by the hair and starts like yelling at her. He was really mean. Like just an ab he did the kind of things you would never see in comics today, which yeah. is on one hand a good thing, but on another hand sort of I mean, he is the son of Satan. Well, and his whole quest of Boy Scout. (laughs) His whole quest has been to further himself from his father and the way his father works. So I guess it makes sense that he tames himself down over time. Now Mm -hmm. let's get back to this issue. What do you? What are you? What are your thoughts on this issue in particular? Well, uh, for for one, I I absolutely adored it. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was um, when uh, the reveal comes that it's uh, Cathara. And not this. Um, uh, uh, what was his name again? Uh, uh, Jedediah uh, Ravenstorm. That's yeah. Je- yeah. When, when we the reveal is that it isn't actually uh, Je- Jedediah Ravenstorm. It's actually this Gathara. Uh, her form that she takes, that um, ghost form with her guts hanging out. <laughs> yeah, no, I just I loved it. And it was also great that this was Herb Trimpiar too. So it's kind of fascinating that, as you mentioned, this fits in in that uh, collected edition between issues one, or three and four of The Son of Satan ongoing, that it actually more fits in stylistically art-wise with the rest of the um, the uh, Marvel Spotlight right, run yes. more so. It's true, Because yeah. Herb Trimpey did do some of that art. Yeah, it really feels like this is some sort of coda to the Marvel Spotlight stuff. Yeah. Um, and I wonder yeah. why there must be some sort of continuity why in the collection they placed it between those two issues. I haven't figured that out, but yeah, I would guess it was probably just publication date. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, guess. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so this the the only thing that bugged me about this is that Kathara never really states her intention in this book. No, not at all. Yeah. She possesses <laughs> just, Yeah. She just is there. Um, but she's obviously called um, a, a daemon so that she can destroy him because that's what she's trying to do yeah. in the other issue. Yeah. Yeah. But she never outwardly states that. So if you only read this issue, if you're only reading this Marvel 2-in-1 epic collection, you have no re- no understanding of this character or you, you don't know None. why she's doing what she's doing. And, and her motivations or her actions are quite bizarre in the sense that there's this moment where she's got Ben Grimm possessed, yeah. and then just says, eh, this isn't challenging enough. I'm not going to possess <laughs> right. anymore. And then she gets her ass kicked because she just suddenly had the son of Satan contend with. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like <laughs> so many of the issues in this book, if you take, like, this is a story about son of Satan, so if you take the thing out of the story, the same thing happens. And he is of yeah, no consequence yeah. at all. He doesn't do anything <laughs> totally. to change this, the ti- to change the tables or anything. No, not at all. And, you know, right at the end there, there's even that moment where he goes back to Reed, and uh, Reed says, and I'll uh, quote, "Ben, you're back. Did you find anything? Nope, not a thing. Better check out your gizmos." Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, nothing <laughs> of consequence what? at all. You know, one thing that really struck me about this, and it's just kind of a classic moment with Ben, 
So that mobile where he says, I got this monkey suit off. He's just wearing clothes. He's not wearing anything. He's not wearing a suit. He's got like a trench coat and pants and shoes and a hat on. Yeah. And, you know, it's this classic thing where Ben always needs an excuse just to be mostly naked. Just a guy <laughs> running around in his underwear. Yeah. Which, in one sense, is just completely absurd. He's always sort of like bummed out about how I'm a monster. Well, then why are you walking around just in your underwear all the time? Making it really obvious <laughs> that you're a man made of orange rocks. But it struck me that maybe the perfect excuse is, and maybe someone needs to write this in the future, here, I'm giving you something for free, Marvel, is that maybe Ben's Rocky High just actually literally makes him a little bit more, you know, uncomfortable. Maybe the feeling of clothing on his Rocky High just isn't terribly nice. Because I don't know about you, but, you know, if if I was covered in scabs, <laughs> this only relation I can make it to is I, I probably wouldn't like wearing a lot of clothes. You know, when you've got, like, wounds and stuff, it doesn't feel good to have stuff rubbing on them all the time. Now, I always wondered, though, like how sensitive are his are his nerves if he actually his outer shell is rock? Um, can he feel that kind of stuff? Well, and, he, I would suggest that he has to. Otherwise, he would be killing everybody constantly with an inability to control his strength. And he, he does kiss Alicia often, and she'll kiss him on his rock. <laughs> That's so strange. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounded weird. Yeah, <laughs> on his on rock. Epidermis. <laughs> let's, let's be clear here. Mm, yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, Which, of course, leads to that classic discussion between uh, Stan Lee and what's-his-face from Mallrats when he asks, what is Ben's penis made of, anyways? (laughs) Well, until Marvel Marvel has to release their adult line of comics where they can show Ben's thing. (laughs) The thing, damn. The thing. (laughs) (laughs) And all the late-night pundits will be talking about the things. I'm just going to say it. Can I swear a little bit, almost? Sure, okay. The thing rock cock. <laughs> it is fun to say rock. Oh cock. yes, yeah. Maybe I'm talking about everything. Who knows? Oh man. Oh um, no. One thing that um, I love about the Son of Satan in the original version was there was that little nuance that Herb Trimpey seemed to get that a lot of the other artists didn't get. Uh, the way he designed, or the way that uh, uh, the trident would be drawn, where it wasn't even on both sides. One end of the spikes is a little shorter than the other end. Oh, yeah. And that sort of got lost with certain artists, but Trimpy didn't lose that element. I like that quite a bit. It's a neat little nuance. That's cool. Yeah, I never even noticed that. That's awesome. It's a subtlety that I quite like. And, and, and I mean, let's just face facts here. I mean, there is a categorical absurdity to the notion of the son of Satan wearing like you know skin tight leggings and underwear and weird booties and a belt and a bare chest <laughs> it, it's this beautiful homage to the era that outside of itself is just absurd but i've always loved it i don't know what it is about son of satan but i've always loved everything about him just everything about him except for the stories half the time when he first came out if you've read that first volume uh, his his um, uh, pentagram or his uh, star was right side up, and at one point they had to come up with a storyline to flip the star to sort of explain. Well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Oh yeah. But rather right. than just sort of admitting to a mistake, they had it be this weird spell placed on him, and you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I see that on the it's even on the cover of the of the classic trade. It's, yeah, it's yeah, the it's right it's way up, right yeah. side up. Like he's a sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. Perfect. Yeah. You know, one thing I really wondered about, too, was um, yeah. um, how uh, I, I'm reading the essential volume in black and white. 
and uh, the line work is brilliant. I mean, you right. know, everything about this issue, art-wise, I really love. And I'm wondering how well the um, the color reproduction was in the uh, essential volume. The color looks fantastic. Um, they did a, a bang-up job. This has just been released, I believe, in um, the Marvel Masterworks line. And that always gets uh, the top-notch restoration. And so these are the yeah. direct files from the Masterworks. And they look great. They look even better than the uh, than when it was reprinted in, in the Son of Satan classic because that one book is from a few okay. years back and it has a it's yeah. a different restoration and so the colors are even more true uh, to the to the original oh, to the original great. publication. Yep, I had actually entirely forgotten that it was in this <laughs> Son of Satan publication. <laughs> you could have read it in color. <laughs> yeah, I could have. I'm looking at it now and feeling kind of goofy about it. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, I think that kind of sums up uh, this issue. Thank you for joining us for this, Hartley. My absolute pleasure. Uh, we're on issue 15 now, and with me is Jared, who is my co-host for Captain America and X-Men and X-Factor. So, hi, Jared. How are you? Hi. Uh, I'm good. Yeah. How <laughs> awesome. Are you? I'm good, yeah. too. Now, you, when I asked you who you wanted to pick, you picked Morbius. Is there a specific yep. reason why? The reason why is uh, several years back, I, I was digging through the you know dollar bin on in my local comic shop, and I came across a bunch of Morbius solo series issues. And I didn't realize he had a solo series, but uh, so I picked those up. And it, along with those, there was uh, reprints of uh, his '70s solo series, which was kind of kind of interesting. I think it was written by uh doug mensch nice yeah so it, it was uh kind of fun reading that and yeah and i i knew his uh 70 series didn't last too long so i picked this issue to you know thinking that because i i know they in these uh marvel two and one marvel team up they would oftentimes if there's a series that was canceled they would tie up some loose ends and uh in these team up books but that is totally not the case here <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you give us a recap um of what happens in this issue here all right this issue is uh the return of the living eraser starts out with uh alicia masters you know sculpting uh face of of the thing and above her is uh morbius looking in on her and he breaks in, he's a, a taxer, he's going to bite her and suck her blood because he is the living vampire. But luckily the thing is in the hallway there and he breaks in and, and stops him uh, and chases him, out, chases him out. Meanwhile, right under that building, the living eraser pops into, into this dimension from Dimension Z Right, and he erases uh, a drunk guy right away. But Morbius sees sees this guy. He's like, "Oh, well, I, I didn't get uh, Alicia's blood, so I'll I'll drink this guy's blood." And the thing sees that, tries to stop it. They fight, but the eraser erases both of them as they're fighting. What that does, it sends them to Dimension Z. Where they find out that uh, I guess the living eraser has taken over and has imprisoned all of the uh, 
the the king or or whatever his title was of right, all the rulers, of this dimension. Yeah. 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 So uh the thing and Morbius team up to break the leaders free so they can stop the the living eraser. <laughs> and then they they go back to the dimension on Earth and bringing the the rulers of dimension Z with them and they stop the living eraser and then they the rulers take take the bad guy back to the dimension but morbius has uh still has the erasing dimensional things on his hands and he erases himself and he disappears uh because he he thinks that he will never you know he'll always be a monster and he'll never be happy or so he'll he's just taking himself out of the dimension right. hopefully never to be seen again <laughs> but he is <laughs> yes yeah so the eraser what do you think of this guy he is his very weird <laughs> i mean th- this whole dimension z thing is is very weird <laughs> well if you remember that this is um the eraser comes from the early 60s he's right. one of um ant-man's very first villains um, in fact, I think the issue that he turns into, that he becomes Giant Man, is the first appearance of, of the Living Eraser. Right. So, back then, Stan loved putting aliens in, like, every other issue. Yeah. <laughs> so, traveling to Dimension Z and meeting aliens is uh, pretty standard fare for 1960s superheroes. But now that we're in the 70s, it does feel a little out of place. Mm-hmm. However, this is the exact same plot, sort of, that happened in um, issue number four of this book where he teams up with thing teams up with captain america and travels to this in that that one it travels to the far future where he he finds that earth is overthrown by um, by these aliens and has to try and uh, help them out so kind of the same deal yeah yeah Um, i I do love the visuals of the eraser of how he just kind of swipes and and things are gone yeah kind of cool yeah, I, I looked it up, and I guess this is the the Living Eraser's second appearance, right? And his uh, his third appearance uh, isn't until 1992. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, in the She Hulk book <laughs> that Amazing. was going on at that time. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe he'll catch on. <laughs> <laughs> He's due for a fourth appearance at some point. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So I like Morbius in this one. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a cool character because he is he's grumpy and mopey, kind of like Ben Grimm is. Um although his the reason why he's a monster is a little bit worse than Ben. He doesn't just look like a monster, but he actually has a thirst for blood which Ben doesn't have. So he's kind of a little bit more dangerous. And you know, obviously he he knows it and it's it tortures him, but yeah. he he can't control his thirst. So yeah, so um, he uh, he erases himself. I, I love these little teleportation devices where you just swipe and little parts of your body get teleported one at a time. <laughs> um, it seems like that would be painful. <laughs> yeah, I, you would think so, but I don't know. Yeah. So he blinks out right. of his existence, and then later on, I think it's just a few months later, he reappears in Spider-Man. It comes back yeah. to Spider-Man comics. Right, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, I think it's six, seven, and eight. I want something like that, but yeah, it's not not too long after after this. So. Yeah, 
Yeah, so this was a this was just kind of an odd issue. It's weird to see like a 1970s horror creation team up with the thing and travel to dimension Z. It's just it's an odd combination. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the the issue as a whole? Did you enjoy it? It was fun, you know, but it's it's totally ridiculous, but <laughs> I mean, that, I guess, what else do you want for comics? Yeah, I guess so. Just, I mean, it's yeah. it's good, can't be fun. And that's, I think, kind yeah. of the basis of this book is to have some good, can't be fun. Um, right. This is the right. only issue in this book that's drawn by Arville Jones and Dick Giordano doing the, uh, I guess, the layouts and the finishes. And I, I don't like his thing, but he draws a cool Mobius. Uh, Mobius. He draws a cool uh, Morbius. <laughs> and yeah. Alicia is really cool, too. Now you're making me wonder if uh, Mobius ever drew Morbius. <laughs> yeah. If not, that was a missed but, opportunity. It, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not familiar with Arville Jones. Uh, do you know anything else he he did? I don't know if he had like a regular gig, but he pops up every once in a while doing fill-ins and such. Um, I'm, I'd oh, have yeah. to look up to see if he had a steady thing that he's kind of known for. I'm not sure. Yeah. And it, it's kind of weird, you know, seeing Dick Giordano on on here also because I think he became like the you know high up higher up guy in uh, in DC. But <laughs> right, yeah, I guess that would have been later. So yeah, that would have been later. He's probably at this point. I think Dick Giordano was working with um, Neil Adams at Continuity Comics. Oh sure, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, there we go. That's this issue. Thanks for joining us for this one, Jared, and we'll have you back when Volume 2 comes out. Yep. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So next up is issue number 16. This one is The Thing and Kesar. And with me, uh, joining me for this issue is David Rust. Hi, David. Hi, Curtis. It's great to be on your show. Yeah, and uh, this is great. You are a uh, a listener, and you've and you have the opportunity to be a part of the show now, so that's kind of exciting. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about Kesar today, and uh, what's your history with this character? Have you Do you know a lot about him? Uh, I wouldn't say a lot. I haven't read every appearance or anything, but I, I do have an affection for the character from the, uh, the Bruce Jones-Brent Anderson series, the oh, Kesar yeah. the Savage, I think, around 1980. I, I really did love that series a lot, actually. Right. Well, and this place is uh, right before that, doesn't it? Well, not right before it, but... Just uh, yeah, five years or so. Yeah, that's great. Well, why don't we talk about this issue in particular, Into the Savage Land? Can you give me a brief recap? Well, it seems like Reed Richards has noticed volcanic activity going on around the world, and he sent the thing on a mission to the South Pole to the Savage Land with some instruments for some reason to uh, see what's going on with volcanoes there. It's not really clear. <laughs> it's not at all. <laughs> how all the volcanoes in the world are tying together but uh the thing parachutes in you get a you almost get a guest appearance from nick fury since he's apparently on the plane dropping the thing off but he parachutes in fights a pterodactyl on the way down fights an allosaurus when he hits the ground kazar and zabu jump in to help him with the allosaurus and then they find that there's a kind of a cheesy supervillain named v for volcanus who's trying to tap into volcanic power to get himself some superpowers. <laughs> this is, it's so funny. I love it. Um, because this guy is just like, I'm pretty sure he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, he just wants superpowers real bad. <laughs> so yeah. He's willing to jump into a volcano or something. 
But he seems to have a lot of resources. He's got, yeah, big, uh, big Kirby-esque machines and a squad of men in Kirby-esque uniforms. It's very Kirby, yeah. Um, this is, uh, after a few issues of not being on the title, Ron Wilson is back uh, doing the pencils for this issue. And uh, he, does, he does go quite Kirby uh, with these characters, but his, his Kazar doesn't look as Kirby-ish. That's, that's true. There are, there's some pretty detailed musculature in some of the uh, the drawings of Kazar that definitely don't look Kirby-esque. Mm-hmm. I always love these uh, Kazar or Savage Land uh, issues because I just like dinosaurs. It's always fun when superheroes get to fight against dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, you bet. It is uh, funny how dinosaurs have changed over the years. Nobody talks about Allosauruses anymore. It's all T-Rexes and Velociraptors. Yeah, it's true, yeah. The inker in this is Dan Adkins, and I feel like Dan Adkins also gives it a, I don't know, maybe a, a little bit of a Joe Sinnott feel with through his inks, just kind of the way he shades the thing and um, the the fur on Zabu. It's a it has a, a very Joe Sinnott kind of style quality to it, very kind of a bold brush strokes and that kind of thing. I think that adds to the yeah. Kirby factor of a lot of this machinery and that kind of stuff too. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. So how do you like this death trap? The death trap hanging in the cage, suspended over the volcano? Yeah. <laughs> that could could erupt at any minute? It's classic. And he like he spills the beans and says what he's going to do, and then he just walks away and leaves them to their own devices. <laughs> classic villain mistake. I actually looked up the villain on uh, the comic book database or a few other places and okay. found that he, uh, he never appeared again. Oh, this really? This is it. This yeah. is it. Okay, well, I guess after you fall in a volcano, there's not much for you after that. But I wondered about that, because he is trying to tap into volcanic power. I think it would almost be easy to bring him back, saying he'd absorbed all the... All the energy or whatever he needed power. to. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been good. I guess no one saw yeah. the merit in this character. No. No, there wasn't really much to him. <laughs> what do you think of this issue on, on a whole? I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I, I have one really critical observation. I, I, sure. The old Marvel writing style where they get the plot first, I, I don't think I've ever noticed quite so much as with this issue that that the penciler, yep. uh, Ron Wilson, wasn't really thinking it out and ran out of time and had to rush in the climax. <laughs> the big climax is on the last page, which is a ten-panel page. He doesn't have any any pages before that with as many panels it's all just crammed in there really tight to, you know see the thing threaten the thing pull a chain the guy fall the guy die they wrap up oh man you're right yeah and these panels just get smaller and smaller as you go down the page <laughs> yeah it's and totally you, like he ran out of space and so. if you just look at the last page the the, the previous page he could have uh, split up some of those bigger panels and spread it out a little bit more um, and yep. there's there's actually how many splash pages are there in this issue? There's uh, there's three splash pages: the cage, um, the Allosaurus, and the the first page. And then there are other pages where half of the page is one panel, like the first yeah. shot of the Allosaurus, or when the Fantastic Four are looking at their machine. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He just he yeah. totally ran out of time. You're right. <laughs> That's a good observation. Oh, ran out of space. I mean, yeah. Well, I did notice that the next issue blurb is incorrect. 
It points you to Marvel Team Up 47, but you're, you actually have to come back for the next issue of Marvel 2-in-1 first. Yeah, you're right. So I don't know if that was poor planning, or they switched which issue went in which book. Yeah, I think um, I have a theory about that that I will speak about when we review the Marvel Team Up Part 3 of this story. So you can stay tuned oh, okay. for that one. Yeah. But all in all, it was a fun issue. I don't want to be overly critical. I do like the Kirby-esque drawings. If you, if you look at the thing punching out a whole bunch of bad guys on the on page 352, which is the second last page of the story, mm -hmm. that is just such a classic Kirby panel to me. It really is, and they're like flying. You can just feel the air rushing past you as yep. the bodies are flying that past you. It's a very classic yeah. Kirby pose. So, yeah, and I think this is a... I think Ron Wilson kind of tries to do this a lot, in, per in particular because it's the thing. I don't know if Ron Wilson... His, if his artwork would be the same if there if this were a I can't even think of stuff that's not done by Kirby if it's like a Spider-Man book although he draws Spider-Man in the next Marvel team-up issue so maybe that's not a good example yeah I did enjoy it though and, and Ron Wilson this is really in his career I think he's done three issues of this is maybe his third issue of Marvel 2-in-1 or right. fourth yeah I think it's his and yeah, I, fourth. he does become very associated with the character through a lot of Marvel 2-in-1 issues and then the the John Byrne thing solo series, right? That, well, that John wrote, I think Ron Wilson drew that. Uh, he event, yeah, I think Byrne did the first few issues, and then Ron Wilson took over after that. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. He has a long association with the thing, and he, yeah, if you look at those those thing issues that are a little bit later, now that I'm thinking about it, like he's way more polished, um, and just knows mm -hmm. what he's doing more. So yeah, he 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 learns his stuff quite quickly. Yeah. Actually, I shouldn't say quickly because that's um. I don't necessarily know quickly, because this is only the beginning of Marvel 2-in-1, which runs for like 100 issues or something, right? <laughs> and then it goes, turns into the thing. So that's another five years down the road. Yeah, but no, I think this is early work for both both Bill Mantlo and uh, Ron Wilson. I mm -hmm. think they've both uh, just been in comics since about 73 or 4. Did, uh, yeah. Both in for two or three years at this point. Great. Well, I thank you for joining me on this um, on this issue, David, and we'll catch you um, on the next time you're on the show, David. Okay. Okay. Nice chatting with you, Curtis. This was fun. Okay. Moving on here to number seventeen, Marvel Two and One Seventeen. This is the Thing and Spider Man, and joining me for this issue is Frank Martini. Hi, Curtis. Now, can you give me a brief description of this issue, please? Yeah, so it's uh, written by Bill Mantlo and it's drawn by Sal Buscema. And it's, uh, well, it's the continuation of two different stories. Uh, well, it's the continuation of the, the Thing story in the hidden uh, jungle of Kaysar. And for Spider-Man, which is the, 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 the team-up of this issue, Spider-Man returns from to the present, from uh, a very long storyline that ran in Marvel team-up. So as the thing is escalating a volcano, he literally bumps into the basilisk, uh, which is a character that initially appeared in Marvel team-up 16 and 17, a long time ago. That's, that was his first uh, and second appearance. So he was supposed to be dead, uh, or buried into lava, but apparently got better. And um, so the thing bumps into the basilisk, and they have a very quick fight uh, in which the thing appears to be defeated. And long story short, they end up uh, creating a volcano at, in New York 
and the basilisk gets out of the um, of the volcano, holding the thing and throwing the thing to directly straight to to Spider Man. Um, so that's about the setup of the issue. It's a strange issue, really, uh, because well, first of all, it's not a team up at all because. Um, the thing and uh, Spider-Man do not team up during the, this issue at all because they barely meet. So Spider-Man is not is the, the half of the story is taking place in the, the hidden jungle, and half of the story is taking place in New York, where Spider-Man is located. And then also, what is really strange is that, uh, in my opinion, this issue should have been a Marvel team-up and not a Marvel two-in-one because it's. Entirely the continuation of the Marvel team-up story that we that, that I discussed earlier, where, where Spider-Man was bumping into time. He came from Salem, and then he went into the future and came back in the, in the present. Uh, also, it's drawn by Sal Buscema, while the thing was drawn, generally speaking, by Ron Wilson. And it's not really a team-up per se, so it's... Uh, it's a bit of a of, of a strange issue, really. But uh, I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of the Basilisk. Uh, don't ask me why. And I really enjoyed the the, the first time he appeared in Marvel Team Up 16 and 17. So I'm really fond of this issue. Anyway. I think there's a good point you make about um, this issue probably supposed to being a, a Marvel Team Up issue. If you look at the next issue in this collection, which is the Marvel Team Up issue it has Ron Wilson art. So they were probably mm. swapped at some point in the schedule for, for timing's sake. Plus, in, in, if you look at the last issue, the, the Kazar one, it says you'll find out the ending of this story in the pages of Marvel Team-Up number 47. So this should have continued mm, yeah. into Marvel Team-Up, but then we have this one here. So um, it's actually kind of handy that they could just take the finished issue and stick it in here. I don't know what this... There must have been some sort of scheduling conflicts or something. Mm, possibly yeah. very possible, and also most of the uh, most of the Spider-Man related stuff in the story, and the part when is, uh, Peter Parker really ties with uh, his storyline, so it really feels like a Marvel team-up story rather than Marvel two-in-one. Yeah. And, uh, well, uh, even with the Mary Jane scenes and everything like that too. Mm, yeah. 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 Exactly. One last thing, which is. Um, uh, which is really surprising, but it's more in terms of storytelling, uh, is the fact that the Basilisk appears almost out of nowhere, uh, and you don't even know who this guy is. I mean, the, the, there is no real recap. There is a, some blurb which is given in the in the text, but the real recap of who he is and how he appeared initially uh, takes place in Marvel Team-Up, in, right. in the following issue. Yeah. So, so it's it's a bit of a mixed bag, really, but uh, there's great action, and uh, who doesn't like to see the thing fighting in a volcano? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's always yep. fun. One of my favorite scenes is when Spider-Man spins. He's got to get to the volcano, but the dock is on fire, so he spins a web to be a dock to be a shield to get him through the fire. But then it also yeah. turns into yeah. um, he calls it a corsicle, a small pod-shaped boat, so that he's uh, floating in the water as well. So very uh, inventive with his webs, which is kind of what he did a lot in the 70s. Yeah. On page number 365, there is a Spider-Man swinging mm. on his webs, and there is, um, there's an earthquake or something, and mm. Spider-Man gets shaken off of his web line. But I'm pretty sure that he probably wouldn't have been shaken off if he's swinging through the air, and there's an earthquake. 
I don't yeah. think that he should have been yeah, shaken yeah. off of his web for that. But that's uh, that's comic book science there for you. Well, that's the funny thing of this kind of stories. So, yeah. Well, and 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 the thing that uh, you don't even really understand how they managed to go through the 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 hidden jungle to New York. I mean. Maybe there's a bus line below or something or a, or a subway, but it's really strange how they managed to get from one location to the other. Yes. But it's kind of like, who cares? <laughs> just, <laughs> just a fun story so that the, you don't really need to ask questions. Yeah, and then the last splash page on page 370, really nice. It's a, a great Sal Buscema oh, yeah. splash page. Oh, there. yeah, it's awesome. Mm, yeah. Absolutely awesome. Uh, I was wondering who was inking this. I think it's Mike Esposito and Sal. Uh, yeah, it's Mike Esposito. That's really the the, the Marvel team up team. It credits him as the artist. So I'm I, I'm assuming that Sal Buscema just did the breakdowns for this, and and Esposito kind of filled in the rest of it. And he puts a lot more attention mm-hmm. into this than he actually than, than I find that he usually does. Absolutely, so it looks really sharp. Yeah. And the fact that they say Sal Buscema and Mike Esposito in the credits yeah. means that maybe Sal just did the breakdowns and yeah. Esposito did the finishing. Exactly. Very nicely. Well, thanks for joining on, us for this one, and uh, we'll see you again in, in another Spider-Man episode. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we are going to move on to the conclusion of our story. This is Marvel Team-Up number 47. It's called I Have to Fight the Basilisk. And with me for this issue is Gabe Bustamantes. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Curtis. Thanks so much for having me on the show, man. This is a great honor. Thank you. And not a problem. I'm glad that you can be here. Now, I know you from the Omnibros uh, Facebook group, and then you're part of you're a big part of that group, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, yes, I am a big part of that Facebook group. Not just that, but I'm also a part of the Omnibros and the Omnibus Collectors YouTube network as well. So that's that's a place that, you know, anybody else can pick me up and find me there as well. And that's kind of where my credentials come from. It's great. And uh, I had the pleasure of bumping into you at San Diego Comic-Con um, just recently. And that was really neat at your at your booth because you have uh, you work at a comic shop in San Diego, right? No, uh, yeah, I do work at a comic book store, but it's in Las Vegas. It's called Torpedo Comics. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was great meeting you there. It was so hectic. We didn't get much of a chance to really hang out and chit-chat because that show was out of control. Yeah, it sure was, but it was a lot of fun. That led us to here. It did, yes. Well, let's talk about this issue. Can you give me a brief recap of what happens in this issue here? All right, so for Marvel Team-Up 47, what we got going on here is, as you said, this is the second part, the conclusion to the story. It is basically Spider-Man comes to the rescue of Ben Grimm, the thing, against the Basilic. Uh, it's actually a really nice, quick issue. The story itself, you get a recap of what happened. Uh, is a quick fight between Spider-Man Basilic that explains how he got his powers. Uh, finally, Ben Grimm awakes from his previous encounter with the Basilic. They squabble with the Basilic, him and uh, Spider-Man, and the whole entire story kind of ends on top or in the middle of a bridge in New York City on a fantastic two-page spread. Yeah, that's a really nice spread. Yeah, I love that spread. That's uh, page 386, 387 here in the Epic Collection. It's a great two-page spread. It's not like today's comics where every other page seems to be a splash page. Right. 
they really reserved two-page splashes back then. This is definitely a big moment. This is a huge moment, especially you got the one-two punch from Spider-Man and the thing. Like, it's it's fantastic. It's just got a lot of good detail. Yeah. So this this issue, it, uh, it was kind of a letdown, I think, of, uh, of the story because we have this character, the Basilisk, who has apparently has the power to change things any way he wants them to. And he really doesn't use that effectively. Like he should, so he uses it to cause a, a volcano to appear in the middle of the Hudson River. If he has that kind of power, and like there's one line at the end, he says that I will never allow myself to be called that, not when I can destroy you with a single glance. Well, if he's this powerful, then he should be a lot more formidable than he actually is. He he just kind of flies around shooting his laser eyes, and that's kind of that's kind of it. No, I totally agree. I mean, this this kind of unknown villain who, as you said before, is able to raise a volcano up in the middle of New York City. Why not raise up 15 volcanoes and, and take everything out? <laughs> yeah. And even later, the only other time you really see him use these changing powers, isn't really a changing power, is he creates or he breaks off a platform out of the volcano to fly around uh, New York City causing shenanigans. Yeah, I just feel like he could be a, uh, a much better character if uh, if used a little bit more appropriately. And I think he might come back and join the Serpent Society and Mark Grunewald's Captain America run, but I haven't read any of that, so I can't comment if he gets any better. But uh... No, I hear you. This is the first time I've, I've came across this character. And like you said, you know, the, the issue slightly disappointing. A lot of the issue is kind of used up to explain the previous story, which is very common for or, you know, comics in this time to really explain every single thing that happened. Especially for this issue, though. Yeah, yeah exactly. You get his origin, you get, like, he battled Reed Richards at one point, and, and you get a, a quick little uh, throwdown with Spider-Man and thing. Well, and then the ending is also a little bit of a letdown. They punch him into the sky, or into back into the volcano, and there's an explosion, and they're like, oh, well, everything must be over now. <laughs> the, the volcano disappears, and it's summed up in three panels and I'm like, eh, that was kind of a letdown of an ending too. <laughs> right. It, it all ends on a nice sunset over Manhattan. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> that last, that last little panel is really nice. Yeah. Uh, so a few things that I find amusing, Spidey makes a zip line between the volcano and bridge and, uh, and, and carries the thing, the thing kind of grabs onto his waist and, and they fly down the zip line but the thing's like 500 pounds. There's no way that this should work. But it does. <laughs> this is on page uh, 384 of the Epic Collection. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's comic book science. It's comic book science. Spidey's, yep. Spidey's web is as strong as we need it to be for this moment <laughs> in the story. Well, and so is his. So, is, so are his bones. Like, if, if, if a 500-pound thing was actually grabbing onto him and hanging off of him as they're swinging down here, they would probably rip him in half. Yeah. But, this is great because yeah. that big panel on 384, it just kind of looks like the thing is tickling Spider-Man's ribs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the other thing I find amusing is that uh, when Peter Parker f first joins this battle, he gets a call from Mary Jane saying, do you know what's going on? Because you don't have a TV in your apartment. And he just kind of leaps up and jumps out the window and does his Spider-Man thing. This was in the other issue. And then mm -hmm. in this issue... 
um, J. Jonah Jameson is talking to his assistant and said, uh, he doesn't even know her name. And he says, do you get a hold of our star photographer yet? And she says, no, sir. Um, the line's been busy for an hour. And when I told the operator is an emergency, she cut in. But all we heard was that what sounded like a crazy woman yelling the word Peter over and over. Mary Jane has been on the phone yelling Peter over and over for over an hour. <laughs> that's that's that, a crazy lady. That is a crazy lady. <laughs> you think she'd give up after after a few times. Oh, you think, you know, Peter at least gave her, you know, the common courtesy of just hanging the phone up on her and not yeah, making right. her just keep talking. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah, overall, this was uh, not the high point in this epic collection. I mean, honestly, these stories did feel almost like inventory stories. They were just, you know, not that, that seems to kind of be the layout for like Marvel team up and Marvel two and one, you know, not a lot happens. They're not like key stories or anything right. like that. They're super yeah. fun. You get two characters in one, you get a team up, you know, so that's kind of the way these things work. Exactly. But I mean, I think that's the, that's kind of the fun of it in it. You know, it doesn't really matter what happens. You don't have to follow around too much. And, uh, the stories are obviously very, uh, interjected. They're just, they got an ability to just switch back and forth. Nobody's going to notice too much. Yeah, and they're fine. It's like, yeah, you, you pick up a random issue yeah. off the off the rack, and and you can enjoy it. And that's kind of the the nice thing about these about comics in this era, I guess, in general. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, reading these books made me just want to. I just kept flipping back through these books. I mean, I read this entire epic collection, but it just makes you want to go back and reread the stories because it's it, again they're very uh, new reader friendly. They yep. kind of tell you where to go. It, it it all ends or starts on like some kind of like like continuation points. So it's, it's very fun. That's, that's that was the style of these books back then. Well, thanks, Gabe, for joining me on this issue. I had a great time talking with you. Oh no, thank you very much, Curtis. Take care um, and enjoy the rest of the show. Okay, we're nearing the end of the book here. We have two issues left, and this one is Marvel Two and One Number Eighteen. The Thing and the Scarecrow. It's called Dark, Dark, Demon Knight. And joining me to talk about this issue is Chris Marshall of the Collected Comics Library Podcast. Hey, Kurt. It's good to be here with you again. Yeah, I'm glad you are. And uh, people who have been listening to the show before may recognize Chris. He was my co-host for the Punisher Epic Collection. And we'll have another Punisher episode coming up in the new year as new Epic Collections come out. But we're going to talk about this particular character here do you want to talk about scarecrow before we talk about the issue or do you want to go into the issue first yeah let's talk a little bit about the character because this is uh it's a very interesting one and i, I when when you first sent around this email i'm like oh i'm gonna jump on scarecrow because he's such a cool character and he's very obscure and he's very in the, in the monster in the demon realm uh so this character was created by scott edelman who does all the writing for uh this uh, character and actually Marvel two and one 18 from August of 1976 is the third part of three uh, that started in dead of night number 11 in August 1975 and then continued in Marvel spotlight number 26 in February of 76. Uh, so, you know, this character has kind of bounced around for a few books here and he was meant to be a regular in dead of night, but uh, that kind of went away, and they kind of had to wrap up the storyline here in, in Marvel 2-in-1. Um, so if, if you are just coming out of this epic collection and you're like, what is going on? 
who is this character? You know, I know you're going to be confused uh, as to, you know, many of us are yeah. if you're just kind of picking it up. It's kind of a weird thing. We've never seen this character really before. Um, so this is where we are. I, you need to recap this uh, this kind of storyline to to get you up to speed and what's going on with uh, with Ben in the uh, Marvel 2-in-1 issue. So a quick recap of this is, if I may, uh, Dead of Night, in Dead of Night number 11, his first appearance, we meet uh, a guy named Dave Duncan and his brother Jesse Duncan and Jesse's girlfriend Harmony Maxwell. They are all at an art auction to bid on a painting called The Scarecrow. This is an ancient piece of art that is said to be hundreds of years old and may have a strange uh, mythology about it. Jesse wins the painting and his uh, on his other brother's behalf, outbidding a guy, our evil protagonist as it is, uh, named Gregor Rovich. Uh, Rovich is a member of the cult of Kulamai, uh, K-A-L-U-M-A-I, which Kulamai is, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, he is the bad overall demon in this three-part epic story. He is actually a demon from another dimension. Uh, and over the course of the this issue and also in Marvel Spotlight 26, we find out that the painting of the Scarecrow, uh, the Scarecrow can come to life uh, if he is harmed in any way or if, uh, you know, there is um, innocent people being abducted or something like that. He can jump out of the painting and uh, become a hero. He's almost like an anti-hero in a way. And he is actually painted over... Uh, this, the painting of the Scarecrow is painted over a picture of the demon of uh, Kalumai. Uh, so he is almost like a barrier. Uh, he was uh, painted there to be a barrier, so Kalumai could not get to Earth from his dimension. He is a gatekeeper, as it is. Uh, and you see over the course of this story um, and the two previous ones that we have uh, hit the the demon's minions come to destroy the painting, destroy the character, uh, so the the evil demon can come through to Earth and take over uh, the world. So that is kind of where we're at. And with part three happening in this Marvel 2-in-1, we have a recap. Um, Harmony kind of recaps what went on in uh, Dead of Night. She kind of skips over Marvel Spotlight number 26, but, you know, she's friends with uh, Ben and Alicia, and she's kind of recapping to Ben and how uh, she would like, you know, his input. You know, what can we do about what can we do about this painting and its mysticism and supernatural power? And Ben, of course, you know, blows it off. You know, this is ridiculous, which, you know, Curtis, to me, uh, Ben, who has seen his share of demons and outer space and Galactus and the Silver Surfer over the course of his lifetime kind of dismisses this as like, it can't be happening. <laughs> that was the first you know. note that I made as well. Why is he so against believing this? <laughs> the sa- like this, Yeah, the same thing. After everything that he's seen, is this really so hard to believe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I thought that was kind of funny. And, and then Ben's just being grumpy old Ben. Yeah. And that's really how this story is. Ben does not want to be at this art gallery. He's in a tuxedo. He's very uncomfortable being with all these stuffy Upper West Side people. Uh, he has no interest in art gallery. He'd rather be home sipping on a beer. You know, that's that's our Ben Grimm. That's our lovable uh, thing, right? Yep. Uh, so, of course, um, at this uh, or at the art gallery, um, a gentleman comes up to the Scarecrow painting. 
Uh, and he, for this is very interesting because if the scarecrow is a gatekeeper, uh, you know, or the keymaster, if we're looking at Ghostbusters terms here, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, Kulamai kind of peers past over Scarecrow's shoulder and kind of uh, attracts this gentleman into the painting, who then he turns into um, kind of like a human torch person. Uh, you know, because fire can. Uh, nothing can kill the scarecrow. We come to find out, but he can be harmed. Uh, so you know, he, that's how he's going to get his revenge is by having this human torch character. And of course, the scarecrow jumps out of the painting, uh, who defends himself, and then Thing sees all this, and then uh, Scarecrow and Thing. There's our team up, right? And uh, they kind of go after this uh, this human torch type character, uh, and then uh, ultimately they kind of succeed. Uh, as as they would and the guy comes out of it ben smashes the flames off him basically and the guy kind of comes out of it and of course he remembers nothing of what happened so but uh what are your what are your thoughts you want to go through this as well i, I kind of skipped over it pretty quickly and there's a twist ending i do want to get to but what are your what are your thoughts on this comic um i really felt like this was the third part of the story <laughs> mm -hmm. um so similar to the Gollum issue that's in this book as well it's also the the kind of the concluding chapter of a multi-part story that happened in the, in a different book and so we are thrown right into all of these characters that i guess have already been established that we're just learning about for the first time and uh, and it's sort of just like i don't really care about them because they have no real presence um mm -hmm. and and the 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 recap that that harmony says uh it didn't make as, as much sense to me until i so then i went on to marvel unlimited and read dead of night number 11 and it mm -hmm. made so much more more sense and she does a good job actually they do a really good i gotta i gotta hand it to edelman who was the writer, he, you know, cause he wrote the first one. So he knows a lot about this character. He created the character. So he does a really good job of recapping uh, dead of night actually, which the, I think that's really beneficial to the reader. Uh, when you have the original writer of the issue, they're recapping kind of can kind of condense it down, which is pretty oh, for good. sure. Yeah. They condense it down to one page. It's on page 393, but I yeah. find that uh, there's this, there's this sort of, um, rivalry between one of the characters and the bad guy and he, and all he says all that one character says I didn't realize till later that the reason was my brother Dave managed to plant a fast blow in the fellow's stomach and I had no idea what that meant mm -hmm. um, I didn't know but then I going back to reading uh, Dead of Night you find out that the, the brother Dave elbowed the guy who was bidding on the painting in the stomach so he wasn't able to make a bid therefore um yeah these guys were able to win the painting and uh, that so it just wasn't completely clear i don't know it's not that important perhaps but um i was confused well that kind of leads to the su surprise ending right we kind of come to find out uh that scarecrow in order for him to come out of the painting he must possess somebody and he actually possesses Dave. Yeah. Uh, and so it kind of goes back to, is it kind of a, uh, oh, I guess, you know, uh, almost like a Thor, Donald Blake, or, you know, kind of thing. Do they, does... Rick Jones, Captain Marvel. Yeah, that's it. Rick Jones, Captain Marvel. That's what I was kind of thinking of. Yeah. It's kind of like, are they that symbiotic in a way? Yeah, I don't know. We kind of don't know because 
as we see, as Scarecrow goes back into the painting uh, to reside, the demon is there, uh, then Scarecrow goes in after him, and then the painting seemingly just explodes uh, and is left to cinders. And um, that's when Harmony says in the last panel, uh, Jess, uh, brother Dave is, Jesse's brother Dave is missing uh, and began to suspect that he was the Scarecrow. If uh, the Scarecrow is actually dead, what about Dave? And then they say, is this the end of the most mysterious superhero of all, the Scarecrow? Meanwhile, be with us next week as Ben Grimm meets Tigra. So, as you will. So. Yeah, this this twist ending is is actually quite intriguing. That's when the story really gets interesting. I didn't really care for it up until that point when we find out that they are sharing some sort of space and, and bodies or, or minds or whatever. We don't exactly know. But then... Mm -hmm. But then it, it ends, and I don't know where this continues. It doesn't really tell me. So, yeah. So it really continues um, in next. And I've never read this, so I'm, I'm pretty intrigued to go read it. He isn't brought back to the world of comic books <laughs> until Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme number 31 of July 1991. And he also plays a role in the Fear Itself storyline, which was only, what, five years ago or so? Right, okay. Uh, in that so he hasn't really uh he also showed up a little bit um you know here and there uh i guess in daredevil uh too i'm just looking on the wikipedia page uh i have not read those issues but um a couple of other notes he is actually he was renamed uh to be the straw man uh because there is another marvel character called the scarecrow and of course we know of the batman villain scarecrow of course so yeah they wanted to um kind of separate this so he kind of was retconned you know in a way and i think it was in the the doctor strange series that he is actually the painting is called the scarecrow where the character is named the straw man if that makes any sense um okay and we can i will also tell you being a collected edition guy uh as we know it's being collected here in the epic collection it is also collected in the the essential Marvel two and one trade paperback, uh, and also Marvel Masterworks Marvel two and one uh, hardcover volume two. However, if you want to read the entire three part storyline, uh, it can be found in Doctor Strange Lords of Fear trade paperback from 2017, the essential Marvel Horror volume two, the, which is the paperback, or I also have. The Legion of Monsters hardcover, which is a wonderful hardcover from 2007 that's got this storyline and a bunch of other great monster stories in it uh, that I believe you can still find online if you look hard enough on Amazon and other retailers. I love it because it just adds, I don't have it, but I, I might be tempted to pick that up just because it throws in all of these odds and ends stories that aren't really going to be collected anywhere else. No, and what's another great bonus of this hardcover, the Legion of Monsters hardcover, is that it has the uh, updated uh, handbook of uh, of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe oh, yeah. uh, with all the monsters in it. So it's got Straw Man, it's got the Scarecrow, the two separate characters, it's got both Lilith in there, it's got the Mummy, it's got the Frankenstein, Marvel Frankenstein, uh, Morbius, of course, um, uh you know Mephisto, all all the the demons and monsters that you can want. Nice. So it's a great, great hardcover. So along with this epic. So if you like this character and want to learn more about this character and other uh, monsters, uh, pick up Legion of Monsters definitely. 
Wow, that's great. Yeah, I am definitely interested in this character. And I, I actually like the fact that Marvel 2-in-1 is used on a fairly regular basis. And Marvel Team-Up was the same way to tie up loose ends. There is, uh, I talked about in the Iron Fist episode that I did, the two-part Marvel Team-Up with, uh, with Iron Fist, which wraps up loose ends from his own storyline or his own title after it was canceled. And they tend to mm-hmm. kind of do that a lot. And that's, that's really neat. Are you finding as you go along with it, because I know we're up to 18, I'd, I'd like you to comment on this if you already haven't in the show, uh, but how this storyline is a Ben Grimm storyline and how that character is evolving through this series or anything like that. Um, okay, so this char- this particular issue doesn't reflect that at all. There, okay. there is an, uh, an ongoing thread that pops up here and there with this other character that uh, pops up in the first few issues and then disappears and then kind of pops up randomly here and there and but uh, Ben Grimm has to take care of this guy cuz he has the brain of a kid and so that is his story arc is learning how to kind of be the dad to this character um but it doesn't happen in every issue so there are lots of issues like this where he just kind of comes in punches some things some things happen around him but not to him and then the problem sort of solves itself and Ben kind of goes on his way. And that's very much this issue. He's just here Got it. because this is Marvel 2-in-1 starring The Thing. But it really isn't a Thing issue. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, there we go. Thanks for joining us on this one, Chris. Great. Thank you, Curtis. I appreciate it. Yep. And we'll see you in the Punisher episodes. Thank you. And this brings us to our final issue in the book. This is Marvel 2-in-1 number 19, The Thing and Tigra. So joining me for this episode is JC, and you may know JC if you have been around uh, the Facebook page. JC leaves some fantastic comments and uh, and wonderful uh, commentary and and discussion around these around these epic collections. So I'm glad to have you on the show here, JC. Thank you very much. I am very excited to talk about Marvel Two and One. Um, do you pronounce it Tigra or Tigra? That's a good question. I. For many years as a kid, it was Tigra to me until I, you know what, I think I got into an argument with a, with a fellow friend over it, and I think we finally, uh, we finally laid it to rest because the Marvel cartoon, the Avengers cartoon in the 1990s, yep. Tigra was a regular character, and they called her Tigra. Okay, that was the point that I was going to make as well, if, you, <laughs> if there was any discrepancy here. <laughs> Um, yes. Tigra is is what I call her, and I know that there are some of my other co-hosts. I've heard them say Tigra, uh, but for the sake of consistency, we're just going to go with Tigra for this one for this Perfect. episode here. Now, let's see here. Can you give me a rundown of what happens in this issue? Uh, sure. So, not unlike many Marvel two and ones, we uh, start out with the thing, uh, just doing normal everyday things. In this case, he's sleeping. <laughs> Yes, yes, sleeping. Uh, and in this case, uh, our guest star, Tigra, is seeking out the help of the thing. She has some issues with someone else from her cat people race, and uh, she enlists the help of the thing, and together they try to overcome the challenge of the issue. The, the main protagonist, or sorry, the main antagonist in this one is a guy called the Cougar. Um, I I don't know anything <laughs> about Tigra. I have not read um, any of the uh, of of the stuff leading up to this, like in the in Marvel Chillers. 
that that short-lived series uh she she was kind of the main character of that and from what i understand based on my own research here is that uh tony isabella wrote some of the final stories in marvel chillers he's credited as uh with the plot for this issue so i feel and that and marvel chillers i think was canceled just a month or two before this issue came out so i feel like this is kind of like a a wrap-up or tying up some loose ends from marvel chillers sure that makes sense what did you think of this episode did you like it or this issue i did i feel like tigra is a it's an interesting character for me uh it's she's a little bit of a nostalgic character in that two of the earliest comic books i ever remember owning was uh an issue of marvel two and one number six and then an issue of marvel team up with spider-man and tigra so even before i really got into heavy collecting uh, Tigra was one of the first Marvel characters along with Spider-Man that I, I knew so it might, might be one of the reasons why I picked her for this um, I didn't really know much of her history, the 80s is really my wheelhouse so there was lots of Tigra in the Avengers and West Coast Avengers Right. Um, but it wasn't until maybe the, the 90s that I started getting a little bit of a disposable income to buy some earlier books that I kind of got the gist that she was a different superhero altogether, and that Hellcat, as I had known the the Patsy Walker character in the '80s, uh, was not the first person to wear that costume. So it was a, uh, it's kind of neat. I, I kind of like that she's got some history behind there. So what is uh, what makes her stand out? Why why is she such a different character? So you know what I liked about her, and again not so much in this issue it when we get into later appearances of hers in the 80s what i thought was really neat about her as an avenger was that she really kind of doubted herself i I just kind of liked that as a kid to read that you know here's somebody that has superpowers and wonders man am i even good enough to hang out with these other people or or even just survive in in this lifestyle Mm. you know so i kind of like that about her and it's she, just different. Then she and Ben sort of go well together because Ben often has those feelings um, about himself as well. Um, just self, yeah. self-conscious about his looks and, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. That, that yeah, good and I guess up. that's the Marvel way. You're, you're, you're uh, Flawed characters. characters with, with faults. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so um, this issue has... Um, uh, yet another obscure uh, character from the early days of Marvel. This one being um, Tomazuma from Fantastic Four number eighty. Yes, you're not. You're not joking. I, I am making my way through some Fantastic Four omnibuses or omnibuy, I guess, if you will. Yeah. I, I haven't gotten to issue eighty yet, but I thought it was interesting to think that here's this. Tomazuma, and he's you know powered by these by these incredibly powerful null bands, and somehow this random character Cougar is coming up with these bands, or that this his whole reason for being is to get a hold of these bands. Yeah, I just uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I really felt like this was, um, and this this is the case with quite a few of these stories. It's like this is um this is not a thing um, issue with a guest star it's actually a tigra issue and the thing is the guest star yes and i and i i feel like 
you're probably right, and I, I didn't think about it, is this is probably tying up some Chiller's storylines that uh, yeah. that just didn't get taken care of when the title got canceled. Yeah. And I wonder if the Tomazuma aspect of it would have been in there if not for having to tie this up in a thing title. That's Yeah, that's probably true because otherwise... Tigra has no reason to bust in on Ben uh, like she did. Um, the only reason is because right. uh, of the of the Fantastic Four connection. Yeah. Yes. Um, otherwise, you know, this was actually a fairly enjoyable issue. I liked the the banter that they have at the beginning when she just appears in his bedroom. I, I find it funny that he says on page four eleven in this book, he says he says. Um, Ain't you got no shame busting in on a gentleman's bedroom in the middle of the night with not much on by the way of clothing neither? <laughs> I'm like, the thing prances around in this small pair of briefs and he's talking about how little clothing she wears. I thought that was funny. Yeah. I feel like... Now, when I read this book, I was probably... At some point in my early teens, I went back and bought all the issues of Marvel 2 and 1. So I probably read this book at some point in like 84 or 85. Right. Um, and now as I read it in in my 40s, I think, you know, this is kind of a simplistic story. Um, but, you know, a done-in-one story like this, you can't really, you can't ask for... for you can't ask for a big, complex tale you know, to right, be wrapped yeah. up in 22 pages. Uh, it's boom, boom, they meet, they, you know, get thrown right in front of their adversary. And in this book in particular, the adversary is taken care of rather abruptly. Oh, man. It's almost ever... as if by page by page 21, the writer was like, oh, you know what? We only have one more page. It was, um, it, the ending is completely out of left field. He gets shot in the back, the the cougar, by his fiance, who <laughs> apparently is like a double agent or something like that. And w- there's no context yeah. to this at all, which again makes me think that this is a spun out of Marvel Chillers. Because who cares if she's a if she's a double agent? We only met her a few pages ago, briefly, and it right d- didn't matter at all. And she she hi- so she hired him for her company as like a lab research guy and then he romances her i guess maybe just to get more more cachet within the lab i suppose maybe and then within the within one night she decides yeah i got i gotta kill him (laughs) he's he's no and and the the best thing is is on the last page she she takes care of him right she shoots him in the back she kills him yep and then her and Ben and Tigra, they just walk away. They're like, well, all right. Yep. That's that. The, that, the body is there. I know. Right? <laughs> yeah. They've just witnessed a murder, and they just are like, okay, we're done here, guys. Let's go for coffee. <laughs> right. Yes. Let's go get shawarma. Oh, and yeah, right. It's, it's, it's awesome. It really is great. Just And these last three panels where you see the cougar's you know, hand just lying there lifeless and the three of them walk away yeah there's no talk of calling the authorities or (laughs) no the charm it's sort of like a silver age charm that you know if you wanted to do this as a tv show or a movie you you could never end it this way but in a comic book it's awesome well that that kind of wraps up our whole book here this is uh this has been 
this has been a, a really interesting episode. I hope that you who have listened to it um, have really enjoyed the different perspectives from different people. Um, but JC, since you're the last person on this episode, I'm going to give you this question. What did you think of this book as a whole? Uh, reading a Marvel 2-in-1, so many issues all in a row. Uh, well, I absolutely loved it. Now, a lot of that probably goes to the nostalgia that my first ever comic book I remember owning was Marvel 2-in-1 number 6 with Doctor Strange. Nice. And my mom used to work uh, downtown Chicago, and she would take the subway to and from home, and every once in a while in the newsstands in the subway, she would grab me a comic, and this is the first one I ever remember owning. Wow. So there's a big nostalgia point there. Um, I also loved growing up Marvel 2-in-1 and Marvel Team-Up, because I felt like every once in a while you'd get a, a random guest, like the Gollum or Scarecrow or even Tigra, and I felt like it was it was expanding my my knowledge, you know, of these D-list characters. Um, obviously, in TV, I, I knew Spider-Man, I knew Captain America, I knew the Hulk. Um, but I loved it that I was able to learn of some of these other characters as well. I think that that's really the the highest point for these this book here is the fact that we have so many characters in one package, um, and and the writers, especially you know Steve Gerber. Uh, and Bill Mantlo, they do a good job of providing single issue stories, and some of them cross over to other issues. And there's a two, the random two parter here, but there's so much, there's so much content here. If you bought a modern comic book, something or a modern trade would have maybe three story arcs that would fill up this right. this number of pages. But instead, we have twenty one individual stories that are fairly, for the most part, self-contained. And each one of those stories has a different hero. Like, we have... The only thing yes. that we're missing in this book is X-Men. But everybody <laughs> yes. else is here. It's it's great. You, you, get a, you get a handful of different artists. You get some great stuff, like the, the very early parts of the Thanos storyline mm -hmm. um, with Jim... Starlin's epic, basically starting in the, the pages of the Marvel feature title. You get great art. You get an assortment of artists. The the Dunn and One comic, which as a kid for me was great because I I didn't have a comic book store. I you know I got them sporadically. So yeah. when I would finish a comic and it was continued, I was usually stressed to know, you know, I, I'm probably not going to get this next issue. So there's lots of Dunn and Ones, which are great. And at the same time, now that I've got the whole book in front of me, the three-parter every once in a while, it's awesome, too. I felt like, as as I read this, and did you catch this, too, that it seemed like when this title started, it, when they went from Marvel Feature to Marvel 2-in-1, it was a bi-monthly schedule. And it seemed like they weren't really organized, if you catch me, I think there's in one of the issues it says uh, next issue Iron Fist, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in Marvel Two and One Number Nine, Iron Fist and the Thing, and we never find out the Iron Fist story. We never get that story. I think that yeah. that next issue was a Thor fill-in title, maybe. Well, Iron Fist is number twenty-five, I think. So that story eventually uh, did come about, but it won't be for another volume. But uh, yeah, I know you haven't listened to the whole episode yet. But when you do listen to it, I talk especially with the the Marvel with the Marvel team up uh, crossover with Spider-Man 
there's definitely Excellent. some scheduling issues going on there and uh, you'll um, so people who have listened to this episode already know it so I'm not going to reiterate it here but uh, I believe were, it there were definitely some some uh, scheduling problems for sure well, my favorite is at the end of Marvel 2 and 111 when they say the most unexpected team up of all <laughs> the yeah. thing and who don't miss it and <laughs> you see I imagine if I would be reading this and think well I just got the thing and the golem who is it going to be right it's, it's going to be the thing and, yeah. and wood god right. who could it possibly be and that most unexpected team of all ends up to be Iron Man yeah who he's already teamed up with yeah. in the first right. issue or the second issue yes yeah. Uh, you got to love it. Totally. Well, um, okay, and a couple of uh, bonus features in this epic collection. Uh, some original art from uh, a cover by Gil Kane, uh, some Ron Wilson original art, and some Sal Buscema original art as well, uh, and one house ad. So not a whole lot for for bonus stuff, but that's okay because this is still a, a packed book full of awesomeness. So... I would. Uh, I give this one a good, a big recommendation. Uh, I, I can't disagree. Perfect. Well, thanks for uh, wrapping this episode up with me, JC. This was a lot of fun, and I definitely hope to have you back on the show for Volume Two of Marvel Two and One, and maybe even Marvel Team Up. Should that ever happen? My pleasure, Curtis. You name it, and I will be here. Make mine Marvel. <laughs> 